Welcome to the On The Edge Podcast with your host, Scott Groves. Hey guys, it's Scott Groves, the On The Edge Podcast. I am here with uh, Olympic gold medalist, uh, Ryan Millar, which is funny because we actually went to high school together, uh, didn't really know each other in high school, had a bunch no. of mutual friends, and I was like, hey, uh, on Facebook, uh, you want to be on my podcast? And he's like, yeah, sure, I'll be down in LA. And I'm like, how fortuitous. So uh, worked out perfectly. Ryan, welcome, man. Thanks yeah, for coming in. No problem, Scott. It's awesome to be here, man. All right, so tell us, tell everybody when, where, how, what sport did you win the gold medal in? Yeah, I won the gold in indoor volleyball. Um, as you know, going to high school together, we, uh, volleyball was was my thing back then. I was uh, highly recruited, one of the best players in the nation in high school. You know, in Highland, where we went to high school, our volleyball team, the program in general was was really good. It's pretty crazy. A bunch of the athletes that came out of yeah. Palmdale High School, little tiny Antelope Valley, northern Southern California area. I mean, Will Demps played for the Ravens when they won the Super Bowl. Yep. You won a gold medal. We had a bunch yep. of guys place in the NCAA and wrestling. Like, yep. our football team kind of sucked. Our basketball team kind of sucked. But all the fringe sports, we had a bunch of rock stars. Yeah. We had another volleyball player that actually also played on the national team. Oh, that's for, insane. Uh, his name is Mac Wilson. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know the name. Yeah, he also and he also won two national titles at BYU playing volleyball as well. Pretty so, insane. Yeah, there's some good talent that came out of Highland. So what year did you graduate, and then what did the Olympics look like for you? So I graduated in 95 at, from, from high school and then immediately went and played at BYU in, up in Utah. and But I was recruited by, by all the major powerhouses. I mean, I had really the pick of the litter because I was one of the top recruits in the nation. So uh, I was actually really close to going and playing at Pepperdine. Um. In fact, I, I made up my mind like the night before the signing day. So you, there's like an actual day where you have to sign. And I was only I was actually on the phone with the head coach from Pepperdine and the head coach at BYU trying to work out money at both places. Right. Which is what it was about, right? Right. And it just so happened that it just kind of swung the BYU side. And I said, you know, I went back to the Pepperdine coach and I'm like, hey, I'm going to sign at BYU. And he was happy for me because – the, the, the head coach at Pepperdine at that time and our head coach at BYU were really, really close, uh, like really close. They went back a long ways. And so uh, the decision to go play at BYU was a good one because it, it really shaped my ability to get to take my game to the next level. And then you move on to the national team at the Olympic level. Uh, after I played at BYU, my last year was in 99. The challenge at that time was that the Olympics were in 2000. So I would, have to, I would have to go on the national team, make a big enough impact, and compete against guys that had already been established on the team and actually take a spot, which, as you can probably imagine, coming out of college was not easy. Right. But uh, obviously was good enough, went on to play in the 2000 Olympics, uh, continued my career to 2004 in Athens, and then 2008 in Beijing is when we won gold. And then I actually kept playing and, uh, and was really close to also competing in London. Uh, for a fourth games, which at that time I would have been only one of two uh, American men to ever play in four Olympics. So I was chasing history a little bit, but had some unfortunate injuries. And I was on the backside of my career at that time and and ended up being an alternate for the London games. But w when I when I didn't make those games, it was kind of writing on the wall. This is time to retire. So Yeah. The question I thought I was going to be uh, forget to ask, but now we can bring it up right now because this is relevant. Where is the sweet spot for men 
uh, as the Olympic athlete. Because obviously, the more mature you get, the more you know the game, the yep. more you know the system. But at some point, the body starts to give out, right? Uh, I'm a big boxing fan, and the big saying there is age is undefeated. It right. doesn't matter doesn't matter right. how world-class you are. Eventually, age and injury catches up. So, you know, you're obviously playing at a super high level at 18, get recruited to BYU. Um, Mormon, I'm guessing? I was at that time. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to that later yep. for sure. Um, so go to BYU, play at a, you know, their Division One world-class level in yep. college, right? So you right. play there. And then three Olympics. So, you know, we're talking about, what, 20 years of playing at a really high level? Yep. So where's the sweet spot for men, at least in this sport, to have the knowledge and the experience, the maturity, the work ethic, but still the physicality? Yeah. It's a good question. Um, you know, it, it, you kind of directed the question towards the sport. It, it, if you would have asked me in general, I probably would have said it depends on the sport. You know what I mean? But for volleyball, I would probably say the sweet spot is right around 29 to 31 is at least I'm speaking for myself. I think the best volleyball I was paying in my career was when I, was when I was 30, which was at luckily enough, it was at the Beijing Olympics. I was 30 years old. Um, I had played enough high-level volleyball to have the experience to be good, which was really critical. And my body was physically at a peak position um, to where I could, uh, you know, I wasn't getting injured. I felt strong. Um, I was probably the jumping the highest that I was at that time. I Physically, I could probably hit the ball the hardest at that time. Um, you know, when you're younger, like my first Olympics, I think I was 22, barely. I probably had some some things that were advantageous at 22, but if, just from an overall package standpoint, I think right around 29 to 31, I think, is probably right at guys' peak indoor. What's really interesting is if you look at beach volleyball, it's a little bit different. It, it, this is my perspective again. I think it's probably more towards like 34 to 36 on the beach. And why is that? Um, because generally it takes a little bit longer – to know the ins and outs of the beach game and it's also a little bit more difficult because you're only depending on one other person when you're indoor you got you got six other guys and you know including the libero position that can kind of all pick up a little bit of the slack but when you're on the beach it's kind of like if you're playing bad then either your partner has to play incredible or you're just going to lose and so <laughs> right. The, the experience factor on the beach, I think, plays into your ability to be successful, maybe even more than it does indoor. So for the people that are watching that are totally ignorant, don't know anything about the sport of volleyball, explain the difference between indoor and, and beach. Because beach wasn't even an Olympic sport until the last 20, 25 years. Yeah, like 90. It was actually the first Olympics was in Atlanta in 96. Okay. was the first time they had beach volleyball. Um, it, it's I tell people this. It, it's still volleyball. Right. I mean, generally, the rules are still kind of the same. You, you still get three hits. There's a hitter. There's a blocker. You're playing defense. You're serving the, 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 the core tendencies and, and aspects of volleyball are there. The biggest differences are obviously um, the number of players on the court. That's what, one of the biggest differences. And in indoor, you have six players on the court. On the beach, you have two players. Uh, the beach court is smaller. So they, it used to be, uh, I think, a total of uh, nine meters, and they shrunk at a meter. So they actually took the court in a full meter, and um, w which all in the promotion of trying to you know, make the game a little bit more exciting um, and uh, speed it up a little bit and things like that. So there are some structural differences. Um, 
the game indoors is more about speed and power, whereas the beach is a little bit more around control and finesse. Right. And strategy. Because because you can't just go out there and just beat the ball every time. It's more about, do I have the ball control to place the ball here when I know the defender isn't going to be there? Do I have the ball control to 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 uh, put the ball in a, in a different position on the court? There's things you can do on the beach volleyball side that you can never do indoors. Like, for instance, when you're watching beach volleyball, you'll see kind of guys take kind of off-speed shots. Whereas you try that indoor, you would have a, a defender automatically right there. Would strategically, it would make no sense to do that, right? Because so there's enough coverage on the six-man six, team. You got six guys there, so they're covering every part of the court. Whereas two-man, you got one guy blocking. That means you got one guy that's trying to cover defensively the rest of the court, and so it's it's a little bit more of a chess game on the beach when you're only playing against two two other people. So a little bit more of a thinking man's game on the beach versus like just pound the ball at 100 miles an hour yeah. on the on the court. Pretty much. For anybody or, or outspeed cuz that's another thing indoors. If you can outspeed teams as well, then it becomes really difficult to stop. So anybody who's never watched a pro level 6 man indoor volleyball should go watch mm. it cuz you won't even know what the fuck is going on. It's like a <laughs> ballet of of 6 to 7 foot men, some men over 7 feet, just swan diving and faking and uh, I mean when when the untrained eye when I go to watch it and you don't even know where the set's going and three guys are going up for a fake hit and then some dude from back here just pounds the ball at I got to imagine it's 50 60 miles an hour, right? Yeah, it's sometimes even more. Oh uh, my God. We the in Beijing, we had a guy that I think was one of the hardest hitting people that I've ever played against or with in the history of volleyball. And we used to clock our serves with like, we'd have our coaches with speed guns at practice and he would hit his serves. Like generally he'd always be like kind of the mid seventies, but if he let one go, he'd be in the like low to mid eighties. Yeah. And it, this is a volleyball, like the size it, of a basketball. This isn't slinging a baseball. It's really hard to describe what a volleyball looks like coming at you. That's going 83 miles an hour. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking about the reaction, and and I've played some indoor volleyball and some beach volleyball, just recreationally at, like, the Y. And it's like, you know, you get somebody hit the ball pretty hard off your forearms. I'm like, oh, that kind of stung a little bit. And that dude's probably hitting it, like, 20, 30 miles an hour. I can't imagine taking a volleyball off the face at 80 miles an hour. Not fun. (laughs) Try the fingertips, too. I broke both of my pinkies. I can't straighten them because I broke both of them. Yeah, those both look pretty fucked up. (laughs) Uh, These ones both took balls off, immediately snapped, so... Oh, my goodness. So, okay, so tell us about, obviously, the six-man indoor game was your specialty. Explain to us, you know, what that looks like at the highest level. At the Olympic, you know, going from good, great high school team to college to volleyball, does it become at some point a different sport? Because I've talked to some people that have played in the NFL or the NBA, and they're basically like, it might as well be a different sport. I mean, it's just, it's such a level of expertise that you can't even understand. Yeah, I I would... And as everybody knows, we record in my garage, so the neighborhood dogs are going crazy so they can hear the background. But, um, yeah, talk to us about the evolution of the sport as you get higher and higher in competition. Yeah, you know, I I think you're right because when you go from high school to college, you think, wow, this is a huge step up, right? And then you go from college to the national level, and you're literally like, it's a different game, right? What's really interesting about that level is everybody is really good. You know what I mean? And so the question then becomes, what's, what's it going to take for us to get that much better so that we can beat them? Because you're not, you're not 
you're not necessarily focusing on the technical side of how you're playing because everybody can get up. They can do all the technical skills. It's more about what are the little things that we're going to work on that are going to make us that much better, that 1% better, that 2% better, so that when we're in those matches and it's, and it's you know almost game point, that we're going to be able to win those games. Um, because at that level, the, the, the margins of performance between the, the players and teams is so small. Yeah. So small. I think people don't fully acknowledge or recognize the, the difference between going to the Olympics and coming away empty-handed or, and, go, and winning a gold medal is really small. It's not like these massive differences. And um, the, the question as you're, you know, those four years kind of leading up to those games is how are we going to make up the little bit of ground that it's going to take in order for us not to be walking away with no medal, but walking away with a gold medal. That's kind of what your focus is at that next level. And is that, is that mental acuity? Is that being 2% better at your cardio? Is that having a better game plan? Like what, what is the, what is the improvement when you get to that level? I think it's probably all of that. You're kind of focused on all of it. I mean, with the national team, we had, geez, we had, we had team nutrition. We, we even had a sleep doctor who would come in and, and he would diagnose or he would plan specific sleep schedules for us, particularly when we were traveling across multiple time zones. Like, because we would do international travel all the time and you needed to have a sleep schedule where you could be at your optimum to be able to wake up, have the, the appropriate amount of REM sleep so that you could recover the, the right way so that you could go perform. Um, you know, every team has their own system to go execute. The better the system, the more the the more effective you execute, the better you end up being and more successful you are. And so there's a lot of different a lot of different aspects that you try to like dive into. Um, and the teams that do the, the, those things the best are the ones that end up being successful. Yeah. So um, how much? Because you know, again, to the untrained eye watching a new sport like volleyball, I watch it and I'm like. There's no game plan here. Like nobody's <laughs> nobody's running plays like in, you know, football or basketball. It's like everything's just reactionary and they pop up a ball and somebody hits it really hard. <laughs> so talk to me about how ignorant I am. Like yeah, that's pretty ignorant. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty ignorant. Yeah. Uh, tell tell me like what's what's the game plan? What's the coaching? Like is the coach calling plays? Is the team captain calling plays? Like what's happening on the court? Cuz to me it's like, oh yeah, a bunch of dudes can jump really high and hit the ball really hard like right. I, don't, I, I can't I'm uh, to the ignorant eye I don't know what's going on yeah the problem with that type of thinking is just because you can jump the ball jump really high and hit the ball really hard doesn't mean that the other guys that you're playing against can also jump really high and hit the ball really hard so it's like what do you want to do you're going to go into a match with like an even playing field no you go in with strategy um, we would scout our opponents every time before any match we would have scouting report meetings multiple where we would watch video break down each player break down each of the rotations break down how they serve where's the best places to serve them who's their worst passing player that we want to attack and serve um, what is our blocking system going to look like how often do does this player attack in this rotation and which way do they attack I mean all of that is broken down statistically and we're looking at all of that and during the game You'll even have your, your coaching staff during timeout say, hey, they're in rotation three. In rotation three, they set this player 42% of the time. 
So let's strategize our block on how we can put our best blocking position in front of that player, knowing that most likely they're going to set that player right now. You're, you're always strategizing those types of things. Um, in the game, as far as um, play calls, that falls on the setter. And he also or she is, uh, is, is also has kind of a game plan in their mind around how they want to set and run the offense. It's almost like a quarterback in football. They're the ones calling plays, right? They're getting advice from the, from the bench and from the coaching staff, but you know they have the ability to audible. That's kind of what the setter is doing. Um, anytime the ball is about to be received by us, you're, everybody's always looking at the setter because he or she is calling what play you're going to be running that time. And that's all based on strategy that he is he or she is seeing in the other team's block. And it's I always big, it's a big chess match. I, I always feel like the setter is the dude who like is an amazing player but just never hit puberty and didn't get over six feet tall. <laughs> is that is that the case is that the case in men's volleyball or is that only in women's? Because I know in women's they call it the libero. Is it the same thing in men's? No, no it's the two different positions. Oh, okay. Yeah. So explain that to me. So um the setter is the person that is running the offense so they're actually the one dictating the flow of where the ball is being set to the hitters the libero player his or her sole responsibility is to pass serve or play defense that's it they only play in the back row and they don't have, they don't ever have to rotate to the front they don't so they, they created they never, a, they, created a position for the short person they have specifically created a position for Nimble people is Nimble. probably what I would say. Okay. Not short people, but generally they are the shortest player on the team. Right. But not necessarily. Okay. Um, I remember one time we in the 2000 Olympics, uh, we played against the Russians, and their libero player was six foot six. It's a big dude. Yeah. How tall are you? Six eight. So when you're six eight, how tall is the net? Uh, eight feet. Eight feet. J and like just under eight feet. At five five eleven and three eights or something so i've seen some dudes your height like literally get their waist up above the net i mean what type of hops did you have when you were in like olympic training shape my my recorded highest jump so my standing reach was um eight ten okay and the highest i ever touched was eleven ten. so that that would put my vertical at 36 that's like that's like world-class NBA player, 36 inches, right? If an NBA player that touched 1110 would be good. Yeah. I think the top of the backboard is 12 feet. So yes. you're almost there. So you're basically slam dunking a foot and over a the rim, two feet almost over right. the rim. And we had other guys on our team that would, were well over 12 feet touching. Holy shit. Yeah. So where, cause I'm just, I'm trying to think of the physics of this. A ball is being set to you. You're coming down with 100% of your weight and your shoulder momentum from 12 feet to hit a ball effectively straight down. And what, what is the speed of that ball? That's a good question. I think you're still probably, because you don't have as much time and velocity as a serve, I'm so, it's probably somewhere around the high 60s to low 70s, I'm oh imagining. I mean, how do you even react that fast to block or it's to... It's pretty tough. <laughs> It's pretty tough. I'm not going to lie. It's uh, my position. I was a middle blocker, which kind of put me as the pin position for blocking. I was always in the middle. And so when you're on a, when you're on the outside blocking, typically you're only responsible for one part of the court. When you're in the middle, you're responsible for all parts of the court. And like you talked about, sometimes you have five guys coming at you to hit a ball and you have to try to anticipate where the setter is going to, who they're going to actually set to. 
but that's really difficult when you got five guys running at you at the same time. So is this like being a goalie? Sometimes you dive the wrong way and the ball just goes. Absolutely. Yeah. Happens yeah. all the time. Just feel like a total fool, right? You go, you go right and the ball gets, gets shanked left. It's more of like, nice job. Right. I'm going to get you next time. Okay. You know what I mean? You rarely, when you miss a ball, do you really feel like a fool? Because it's really hard what you're trying <laughs> to do. Like when a goalie misses a really good slap shot, they don't feel like a fool. And it's not like they didn't try to stop it. It's just, it was a really good shot. And you kind of go, nice shot. I'll get you next time. Right. You know? Right. So, so talk us through, I, I'd love to hear a little bit, because um, you're one of the, the few Division One athletes I've ever talked to. What's the experience in college? I'm, I'm guessing it's a little bit different at BYU. Probably not a bunch of drinking and partying. No, not at all. Not at all. Okay. So what was your college experience like as a student plus you know, obviously being big man on campus since yeah. you're six foot whatever, and uh, then playing volleyball at did, did you guys uh, did you guys compete at like the divisional tournaments? Did you win anything in the in college? Like what what was your college experience like? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it's probably what a lot of people think. It, it's 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 hard because you're a student athlete, right? You're there to go to school, but you're also there to compete, and uh, so you got to balance a lot of things in college. And the hard part is, is you're young and stupid and you don't know how to balance things. And so you kind of, you're, you're kind of in that age where you're kind of figuring your shit out a little bit. You know what I mean? You're in that 18, 19, 20, 21 range. It's like, you don't know what you want to do with your life. Right. Right. And, and then, so you, you couple having to manage school with also being diligent in your ability to continue to get better at volleyball. Or, or, you know, if, if you're in athletics. And so there is a balance that happens that's that's pretty tough. Um, after about a year or two, you start getting into the flow a little bit. Uh, we were lucky at BYU where volleyball was um, one of the more popular sports on campus. Uh, it helped that we were really good. Right. Uh, we used to get regularly, we would get 45, 6,500 fans, which, and, and the place where we played only held, I think, I think it's supposed to only hold like 5,500 and we would right. put like 6,500 in there. Yeah. People would line the aisles. They would use the aisles as seats. Some people would be standing up. I remember there was a couple matches where we would, it would be like, we'd be number one in the nation and we'd play number two and they'd have to shut the doors. And then there would be a thousand fans outside who couldn't get in. And I remember one match, the fire marshal had to come in because we put, put too many people inside the arena <laughs> and they had to like take some people out. It was pretty gnarly. And, uh, but like I said, we were good. Uh, my senior year, we ended up winning national championship and uh, we finished with a 30 and one record. And that wow. year was just bonkers. We were just, we were so much better than everybody else. And, and it, everything kind of came together at the right time. But it was a special time. I, I tell people all the time in my progression in my volleyball career, High school, I learned how to compete, mostly because of how good our coach was. He was the ultimate competitor. Mr. Bird, right? Yeah, Mike Bird. Mike Bird. And uh, just, I've never seen somebody, or, or still to this day, who's more competitive than that guy. And he just instilled competitiveness in us. And I think that's such a critical thing for young people to learn at that age. The technical part of volleyball, you're almost not even ready for it yet. You, but you need to like develop that hunger. And he was a master at that. So high school, I learned how to compete. College is where I learned how to play volleyball. And it was mostly because of the coach that we had. He was a master technician of teaching the game. He was a doctor of kinesiology. He's one of the, one of the 
most highest regarded volleyball coaches in the history of the sport. What was his name? His name is Carl McGowan. Uh, won multiple national championships at BYU. Kind of built the program from the ground up. And now they're a continual national powerhouse. And um, he just tweaked little things in my game that dramatically impacted my ability to perform. So college, I learned how to play volleyball. On the national team is when I learned how to win. And again, it was really dictated by the mentors, the coaches that I had. Because winning a gold medal is something that doesn't happen every day. I mean, it's, it, it is hard to do. I, I mentioned to you before, my first Olympics, we finished in last place. So yeah. Sydney. So tell us about that. You you said last, last and then place. and then almost third yep. and then and then gold. Like, you know, in any sport, you usually don't see whatever the Australian cross country team go from last to almost placing to first right. in an eight year. I mean, that's a huge evolution in yeah. any sport, much less a team sport where players are changing around. And I'm sure the team, yep. you know, eight years later, wasn't the same as eight years previous. So right. t- talk to us about, talk to us about that journey. Yeah, it was gnarly. I mean, you know, we went into Sydney was in 2000. That was my first Olympics. We weren't a bad team by any means. I think we were ranked fifth in the world. So we kind of went into the games thinking we're going to compete for a medal. We just dramatically underperformed. It was just disappointing. We had some key injuries, and there's a lot of different reasons. But in the end, we just we didn't play well. That was it. Um, and I remember uh, when on my way back from Sydney, I was on the airplane, and I was thinking, just kind of reflecting on what I just experienced. Right? I'm like, man, did I get into the wrong like? <laughs> did I choose the wrong path here? Because I just <laughs> right. felt defeated. Right. I mean, coming in last—that's that's that's, oh, that's the worst horrible. you can do, right? I, we didn't win. A, we didn't win a single match. <laughs> Holy shit! We didn't win a single match. We lost every single match, and and so I'm thinking to myself, I'm thinking, here's the biggest thing I thought. I thought I looked at the team that eventually won, and and how we performed and how good they played, and the, to me, it was the Grand Canyon of chasms, and I thought there's it would be nay impossible to make up the ground that we would need to make up to go from where we just performed to being the best in the world. And it was a little demoralizing. Like I'm thinking, man, like, is this something I want to keep doing? Because there's no way we can get there, even though I wanted to. So we go through that next quad, the four years, the Olympics, we call it a quad and we go into Athens and I, so wait real quick. Yeah. You're on the plane. You're like, I'm defeated. Fuck this. Maybe I yeah. picked the wrong thing. Where does the fire spark again to be like, all right, you know what I really want to do eight hours a day is work eight hours a day yeah. for four years, years right. to try to get back there and not come in last. Right. Like, like I, I, I can't say I would have had the intestinal fortitude to, uh, to do that. Yeah. So where, where does the, where does the fire rekindle or where, where did the Rocky moment happen where the team was like, all right, now we, we got to do this again. Um, I think for me personally, it was a little bit of, I was being a little naive because I was young still at that time. You know what I mean? When you're 22, you're like, you don't care. You know what I mean? I just wanted a ball. You know what I'm saying? So to, to hang it up just because, you know, we underperformed wasn't something I was interested in doing. I wanted to, plus I wanted to experience the Olympics again because it was such a cool experience. And I wanted to go almost redeem. So there was a little bit of that redemption factor. And so um, going into Athens four years later, um, let's see when was it so about four weeks before the games in fact we were right about ready to go to Athens because you go quite a bit early to acclimate um in practice I, I end up with a really bad high ankle sprain like what LeBron has 
And um, and the doctors tell me this isn't looking good. You got four weeks till the first match. You're gonna be you're gonna be out rehabbing six to eight weeks. And I just kind of looked at him and I said, No, that's not gonna happen. You know what I mean? And the coach was there too, and and he needs to roll the dice as well because he needs to know: Do I need to bring someone else to fill the spot? And I tell him, I said, his name is Doug Beal at the time. I said, Doug, I'm gonna be ready. I don't care. I'll wear a cast on the court. You got to take me. I'm not going to let this detract me from going. And so that, that games in Athens was the only Olympics where I wasn't able to walk in the opening ceremonies because I was still rehabbing my ankle. They wouldn't let me. People don't know when you walk in the opening ceremonies, you're on your feet for like five hours that night. No place to sit down, nothing. You're just walking forever. And oftentimes a lot of people choose not to walk because they've got to compete the next day. And when you get home from the, the opening ceremonies, even though it's an incredible experience, as you can imagine, you're, you're exhausted. Yeah, the emotion. The... You're super pumped up. It's hard physically. Um, you're kind of moving around because you're meeting so many people. It's like you're really good chance to like meet not only the, the American athletes, which are, is cool because you got all the NBA guys you get to hang with. you got the Williams sisters to hang with. Um, you know, you, you see there's Nadal, there's Federer, and you're just like, dude, this is awesome. You know right. what I mean? And you get to hang with all of them. And you look like one of the basketball players because yeah. you're about the right height, right? So the volleyball players and the basketball players probably hang out together. Totally. I got some good <laughs> basketball stories about those guys, but even Kobe, too. It's pretty cool. But um, that one, I, couldn't, I couldn't, um, couldn't go. I couldn't walk in the opening, and so I had to watch it from the village, and I was so bummed, but I'm like, look, it's, this is bigger than the opening ceremonies. First match... Uh, I don't start. I'd been a starter the whole quad. And uh, they, they decided that I wasn't ready to start. And we ended up starting to lose the first match. So as you could probably think about it, my first Olympics, I lost every match. The first game in my next Olympics, we're losing. I'm thinking, man, like, am I ever going to win in the Olympics? And uh, they end up, I think we lost the first set. And our coach said, you know, he kind of looks at me. He goes, you ready to go? And I'm like, yeah. And what they had done is they had like used this special tape on my foot and they'd put my foot in a position where I had no flexibility. It's almost like a cast. And, um, I had to go play, but you know, once you step on the court, the adrenaline gets going. Yeah. I just, it was ball time. And so I, we, we ended up winning the match and, uh, I played the rest of the Olympics. My ankle never hurt me the whole time. Just pure adrenaline. Yeah. I just, it was mind over body. Um, you know, I could still see that it was hurt. Uh, I kept kind of referring to our team doctor saying, Hey, I'm not doing structural damage here. This isn't something that's going to sneak up on me later. Right. He said, no, you're good to go. It's strong. Your flexibility is pretty good. It's getting better every day, even though you're playing on it. And by the end of the tournament, I was totally back to normal. So amazing. So this is in, uh, where, where was this Olympics? Athens, Greece. So you're in Athens, Greece and you guys came in. We, we make all the way to the bronze medal match. Oh. And we play against Russia, and unfortunately, we just do not match up well against Russia for some reason. And uh, we, we fought hard. It was a close match, but they ended up beating us for the bronze. And so we ended up taking fourth place, which is a lot better than last. <laughs> At least we gave ourselves a chance to do something. Right. But still, it was, there was just this huge gap still. Because we look at the team that won in Athens and us even in fourth place – and the gap was massive still. And what do you, what do you 
equate that to when you say the gap is massive like the players were just that more talented or they had a better system like when you're thinking about the gap is it like those dudes had six packs and we didn't like what what do you what are you looking what are you looking at or what are you thinking of or what are you evaluating i think it's just the overall level of play it, like in brazil so 2004 brazil won the the gold medal and they were so far a head and shoulders above everybody else that it was pretty unbelievable actually they were just playing a different style a different way of volleyball at that time and it was so much better than everybody else and i don't think anybody was going to beat them in those games it was just it was their time right but it also provided us a framework around what we needed to do to get better we had four years try to figure it out uh we had a head coaching change which did uh, which played a major impact on the culture of our team. We, we really needed a different culture. Um, one that was uh, much more focused on being the best rather than just doing good job. And our, this new head coach really instilled that in that team. And um, we put forth the effort. The quad didn't start off great. Like one of the first major tournaments in the quad is world championships. I think that's like the year, the second year after the Olympics. So if the Olympics is 04, world championships would be in uh, 06, for instance. And I want to say we took like a ninth. So nobody really had us on the radar. Um, the only thing that was different was the last major tournament before the Olympics in Beijing was a big, massive tournament called World League. The, the U.S. had never won that tournament, and we won that tournament. So we, we go into that tournament kind of like feeling we're like the best team in the world right now. And um, oh, this will be interesting because a lot of people don't, they'll, they'll remember this story. And I don't know if you guys remember this too, but so two days before our first match in Beijing, um, our head coach, his mother-in-law, father-in-law, and his wife are also in Beijing to watch, cheer us on, Right. They go sightseeing in Beijing to a popular tourist attraction called the Drum Tower, which is this tower in the middle of Beijing, right next to Tiananmen Square, where you take an elevator to the top. There's a big platform, and you kind of overlook Beijing, right? So they're there. They've got a tour guide. They take the elevator. They walk out the elevator, and a crazy Chinese local guide steps out of the shadows with a 12-inch knife and attacks them and murders our head coach's father-in-law at the scene stabs his mother-in-law multiple times stabs their tour guide luckily his wife was far enough away that she was uninjured and then he ran off the side of the tower and commit suicide Holy this is shit. this is two days before our first match at the olympics it's the day before the opening ceremonies this happens and i remember it was gnarly because we were at practice our head coach was there nobody had known yet it just happened all of a sudden we kind of see these kind of official looking people come into practice. And I thought they were media because they immediately go to our head coach and he runs out of the gym. And I'm thinking, what's going on? Like, did he forget that he had some type of media engagement? Yeah, which, here, here's the which, drug test team which from happens China. a lot in, right, in, right. in the Olympics, right? So we, we were kind of at the end of practice. We finished practice. They take us into this little boardroom. And in the boardroom is a member of the FBI, a member of the Secret Service, and then at the head of the USOC security detail, who is also a, a former FBI agent. And they say, guys, this is what's happened. And we're just like blown away. We're like, oh my God. Because we knew his, his in-laws, um, his, his wife is also a volleyball player. And we, we were friendly with their family. Yeah, of course. And, um, and we were just devastated. 
And there was a lot of unknown questions at that time too. Was it a targeted attack? Are there, are there people targeting American tourists? Because a lot of our guys, their families at that time were coming to Beijing for the Olympics. Right, right. So and this like, is what year? It was 2008. And 2008, we don't have the best relationship with China. We still don't have the best relationship with right. China. So right. kind of weird going to what people forget sometimes in a communist I'm country where right. you don't have a lot of understanding of the culture. Yep. Yeah, I, I mean, you guys got to all be freaking out. Like, is my family safe? Is my is my mom going to get stabbed in the... It's exactly in, what, we, what we were thinking. Oh, my God. And... Uh, so we come to a pretty hard conclusion that we're going to be playing these games without our head coach. He was, I mean, some things are obviously bigger than volleyball in the Olympics at this time. And, and so we kind of come together as a team and we say, look, you know, it is what it is. We, we, can let, we can let this unforeseen tragedy, circumstance, define what we're here to do. Or, look, I, I, I coach a lot. And I tell people that as a coach – you can only get your players to a certain point. But once the whistle blows, as a coach, you can't really control much. It, at that time, it's about what are the players going to do to go execute on what we've prepared you to go do, right? I say this quote a lot when I do a lot of shows as I do interviews because I think it perfectly portrays what the mindset was at that time for our team. I was at a conference once, and this guy quoted a Navy SEAL captain. And the quote was, as Navy SEALs, this is what the captain's saying, under times of pressure, we don't rise to the occasion. You know how you normally hear people talk about, wow, like you really must have rose to the occasion on that one. This Navy SEAL captain saying, as Navy SEALs, we don't ever rise to the occasion. We sink to our level of training. That's why we train so hard as Navy SEALs. And I remember hearing that and I thought, that is a really powerful statement. And then it immediately reminded me of what we went through in Beijing. During times of pressure, this is huge time of pressure, tragedy, right? You don't rise to the occasion. You sink to your level of preparation. That's why you prepare so hard. So game one comes on and, and, and it's, it's on, right? I mean, we just ball out. We win the first game. We'll, uh, you play five games in your pool. Win, 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 win. Come out of our pool first. Go into the medal round. Win, 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 gold, undefeated. Wow. So it's kind of like soccer, right? Like the World Cup, how you play in your pool, and then the winners of the pools go on to play uh, an elimination tournament. That's right. You got two pools of six teams. So you got 12 teams total. Um, the first place team from one pool plays the fourth place team from the other pool. Crossover. Second place plays third place, right? It goes like that. Yep. Um, during that crossover, that's the quarterfinals. Then you go on to the semifinals. Then you go on to the finals. What's really interesting is we get past the quarterfinals. Semifinals, who do you think we're up against? Russia. Russia, which we hadn't beaten in a major competition in a long time. We just, for some reason, didn't match up well against the Russians. I mean, Drago. Like, you know, <laughs> the, the, the steroids, they help. And I tell people all the time, I say, if you guys want to watch a good volleyball match, go watch the 2008 semifinal match, USA-Russia. So we go up 2-0. We play two fantastic first sets. We're feeling pretty good. We have one set to go play for a gold medal, which none of us on the team has been able to do. Of course, what does Russia do? They immediately come back, totally bounce back. They win the next two sets. So now we're in the tie break. And it goes all the way down to over points right to the last minute. And we, we end up coming up with some clutch plays and we end up beating the Russians finally. And then, and then we get to the finals. Guess who we play against? 
the defending Olympic champions who Brazil. are Brazil. And for some reason, we matched up against Brazil really well. All the other teams in the world at that time all hated playing against Brazil. They, they, didn't, they didn't match up against them really well, except us. We would beat them and regularly at tournaments. I mean, they'd beat us too, but like we would beat them way more than other teams would beat them. Um, they just didn't like playing against our style of play, and uh, we ended up playing a really good finals match. And we, we when you when you say style, um, do you mean the the speed of the game? Is it is it the way the height matches up? Is it the way like when? Because I I think of style in. Um, like college football, you know, you have that traditional power eye. We're going to run right. it down your throat. And then you have the the air raid offense right. that Texas Tech made really famous where you've got, you know, four wide receivers and two tight ends. But in my mind, in volleyball, when you have six people in fixed positions, it's like, how much does the style change? Like, what, when you say our style matches up, what does that mean? Yeah, we were at – in Beijing, we had an interesting um, structure on our team. So we had a really tall setter. Our setter was six foot eight. We, he and I are about the same size, which that's really tall. I mean, for in comparison, the Brazilian setter was about six three, so that's a that's a pretty big difference. We had a we had a really big, powerful right side player, which in the game of volleyball is critical because, uh, in general, rule of thumb is the majority of sets go to the right side player. So having somebody that can really put the ball away at a consistent basis on the right side is really important in volleyball. Um, and then we had scrappy players, our outside hitters, our pin hitters were very, were a little smaller, but really scrappy. And then two very solid middle blockers, myself and our other middle blocker. And for some reason, that mixture of talent and, and the way we played our system, Brazil just could never really figure us out. So that outside right hitter is kind of the superstar in indoor, uh, indoor volleyball. He was, the, he was the MVP of the Olympics. Oh, okay. He was the best player in the world at that time by a long shot. Um, What's that guy's name? His name's Clay Stanley, six foot nine, probably two seventy five. Two seventy five. I had like six percent body fat or something. Could, could <laughs> easily touch twelve three, twelve four, and hit the ball harder than I think I've seen anybody ever hit the ball in the sport of volleyball. I've never seen anybody hit the ball like like this guy. He's just a massive. He's Hawaiian. He's just a big lumbering dude, and. Uh, it was what was interesting is I was I was actually fortunate enough to be in a position to actually set. It was a, a kind of an off play for us to win gold, the gold medal point. I actually set and I set it to him, and he hit it over the Brazilian block, and we won gold, which is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah. That's like that's like your Rudy moment, right? Totally. <laughs> <laughs> and so you know when we're when we're thinking about um, the game, you know they say in football it's a game of inches, or golf it's a game of inches. Like how quick is the play once you guys receive the ball the guy bumps it or passes the setter goes for whatever play he's going and there's three guys fake hitting like what is the time execution on that i mean because you're a big dude the the idea of you running from side to side of the court it just it seems like an overwhelming choreography of big dudes yeah it kind of is (laughs) um and the best players know how to manage that choreography the best Right. Um, I remember when I was at that age, that 30 year old age, the game, even though you saw it very fast for me, I kind of, I kind of just figured it out. You start, you start anticipating things before they happen because you kind of seen it all before. But, um, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's by the time when the ball served, typically by the time it sides out, it's, it's like a couple seconds. Yeah. Only. 
Yeah, I, I remember uh, watching a talk by Wayne Gretzky, and he said, you know, people would always ask me this question of, like, how do you get to the puck, and how do you do this, and how do you react to that? And he's like, it's very easy. Like, once you get to a certain level, you just go to where the puck's right. going to be because you know where the right. puck's going to be. You just anticipate and, where it's going to go. Yeah, and you yeah. go there. You go there. Right. You go to that place. So right. I got to imagine it's the same thing in volleyball. It's like you just know somehow magically this ball is going to be hanging at nine feet at yeah. this exact second because uh, I've tried to spike a ball before. And half the time when you don't know what you're doing, you're just flailing in air yeah. and you're throwing your arm out of the socket. It's like <laughs> it's embarrassing. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, it, it's, it's so true. Um, you know, I don't know, like – when you're at the net and you're watching the other team, you just kind of know, like, okay, that pass is a little off. So most likely the setter is going to set it over to this part or to this player, right? Or, oh, I see him kind of moving over here. That means I know that he likes, when he moves to the right side of the court, my right, I know that he likes to set the ball back. So I'm going to stay a little neutral. And then when I see the move of him going back, I'm going to make my move. A lot of it is your ability to react really quickly, but... You've got to be able to read what's going on as well. That's what Gretzky was doing, right? He was kind of reading the play and then being able to react based on what he thought, based on his experience and knowledge of what was about to happen. And the players that are really good are the ones that are able to read and react really well. That yeah. takes a lot of time, though. You know what I mean? Typically, you don't see players immediately get out there at that level and have that skill really good. They've got it, and they've got talent. And they might be able to jump super high because they're young and they're spry and they got all this energy. But, but it takes – typically you don't see the best players in the world right away. They typically are ones that have been in the game a little while. They've seen it kind of a little bit. They've seen the different styles of play. And then, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine years later, that's when they become the best player in the world. Yeah, I, I'm interested in this because I, I think, you know, I, I coach loan officers and we talk – constantly about schedule and so i'm sure you know once you're doing high school college being a student athlete and then the pro level can you talk about the evolution of the schedule a little bit of like you know how much were you practicing in high school how much did you practice in college and then what does a schedule look like of an olympic athlete for that quad in between you know 2000 and 2004 yeah um you know high school is a little bit more uh lax even though in high school you can kind of play forever right and that's what you kind of do when you're in high school. Like I remember any free time that I had, we were playing volleyball. That was it. That was like our whole life, right? I didn't care about dating. I didn't care about nothing. All I wanted to do was play volleyball. And, of course, you had practice when you could after practice. By the way, you missed school. you missed out. There was a lot of cute girls at Highland I'm high sure school. I'm sure there was. So you, you, <laughs> volleyball took you away from a lot of cuties. I got to hang out with the volleyball girls. So oh, okay, that's, that's fair. Yeah, there was a lot of good-looking girls on the volleyball team, too. I won't name any names, but a few of them were mighty attractive. So, anyway, I digress. Okay, so you're playing all the time, but it's recreational. Yeah, and the structural practice typically happens after school when you guys can do it, right? You get two and a half, two hours after school, typically. Um and then you got matches when you're in season. That's kind of high school, right? And did you play club, I or did did, did yeah. you know you wanted to be a college, you know, slash professional slash Olympic athlete? I mean, were your parents spending twenty thousand dollars a summer to send you to volleyball <laughs> camp, or what did that look like? Um, I don't want to because you want you get you sound conceited a little bit. When you were as good as I was, it, it, I did play club volleyball, and you needed to play club because again, I just wanted to play ball. But when you're as good as I was in high school, the clubs come to you and they say, come play for our club. You don't have to pay anything. 
Got right? it. So it's and then it and I had the best clubs coming to me. You know, I, I played two years in down in Huntington Beach, so I had to had to commute for practice from the high desert down to Huntington. Oh, for anybody that doesn't know LA, Ugh. Palmdale is kind of like the um I'll just say it's a suburb of LA that is not highly regarded. It's about an hour outside of LA proper. Right. Huntington Beach is an hour south, south of LA. Right. So you're driving two hours, three hours yeah. in traffic right. to play club ball? Yeah. Jesus. Oftentimes it was too much and I'd have to stay down there with like teammates and stuff because I'm like, I just can't I can't do this. You know what I mean? But but I just love to play. And I'm on the best teams in the in the nation. I'm playing against I'm playing with and against the best players in the nation too. And at that level, when you're that age, one of the most beneficial things you can do for development is play against the best. And even though we had a good program at Highland, we're still, you know, scrubs from the Antelope Valley, right? right? I needed to go play against the beach players, the guys that were down in Huntington, the guys that were down in Manhattan, the guys that were in Rodondo. Yeah, because jumping, the jumping on the sand is no joke. Yeah, I mean, those guys all play on the beach, but then they're always, they're all the best indoor players too. And um, so, for instance, my club team, every single player on my club team went and played Division One college volleyball. Every player on my club team. Not every one of the players on, my, on the Highland team went and played Division One college volleyball. Actually, just two did. So it's, there's a big, there's a big uh, skill difference between what we were trying to do. That's why I had to go play club. So, you know, in high school, it's all about playing as much as you can, wherever you can. When you get to college, um, there are actual rules, NCAA rules, around how much a team can train. And there's designated times during the year when you can actually play with your But that's team. not real, right? It's real, yeah. It is real? Yeah, yeah, it's real. Like, I always think of football teams that are like, yeah, 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 we can only practice this many hours, right. but not really. Yeah, it's it's real. Okay. I, at least that's what it was for us. Nice. Um, so do you remember what that was? Do you remember what the limit was as far as either training or when the season was allowed to be? Yeah, there was certain times of the year when you were in season, you had a certain amount of hours that you could actually train as a coaching staff, full team. There were um, casual hours, right, where guys can get together and do pickup games and stuff like that. But as far as formalized practice, you had, a, you had a time schedule that was dictated by the NCAA. And, um, and so that's how it was in college. And so and that the practice would typically be when you're in season, typically you wake up really early, go lift before class. Then you would go to class. You're done with class probably 2 o'clock. Then you go into the training room start prepping for practice practice starts at 3 3 30 you go till 6 6 30 and go home and study that, that's pretty much how it was when you're in college yeah in in the modern athletic you know you talked about the olympics you had your sleep coach and stuff yeah how much of the training let's say you had a three-hour training block in a day how much of that is like warming up stretching recovery i don't know massage or whatever and how much of that is like on the court just pounding the ball learning the skill it's probably it's probably a good 45 minutes to an hour of warming up. That, that includes all your stretching, um, light contact with the ball, ab, core work, and then also cool down stuff, right? Which could include also some core work. Um, we, I remember even doing Tai Chi at BYU as cool down stuff to just, you know, get into poses and doing some yoga stuff and anything to do to clear your mind after practice. And then the actual on the court, hardcore practicing was probably about two hours plus ish, two hours, 15, maybe, um, which, which was probably about normal. 
on the national team, it was a little bit different because that's your full-time job. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't think this is something that a lot of people understand. I think a lot of people think when you're on the, the national team or, you know, I know some people that wrestled in the Olympics who, you know, lived in Colorado. Spring, right. Um, but that's your full time job 24 seven. When you're with the national team, it's your full time job. So the, I'll, I'll tell you why I say that, because when the national team is in season and I say the national team, meaning the Olympic team, right, the USA team. Um, typically you wake up, you go in, um, to, to prepare for practice. Typically we practice in the morning. Sometimes you do two days practicing two days. Uh, most of the time, if you're not doing practice in the morning, practice in the afternoon, you're doing practice in the morning and weights in the afternoon or some type of agility work, jump training, plyometrics, something like that. So pretty much it's, you wake up at whatever. I when our training headquarters were in Anaheim, California, and so I, I actually lived in San Clemente for a while, so I would make that commute up to five. So um, I'd probably get there at eight. Practice starts at nine. We'd go till about noon. You, you'd go to lunch as a team, typically. Come back, re-warm up to go either again or get into your jump training, plyometrics, agility training, uh, or weightlifting. And then you're probably heading back home around five. So it's like a full day. And uh, that's every day. Every day for four years. Yeah, but here's, here's another um, interesting dynamic here. The U.S. team typically plays during the spring and the summer. That's when you're with Team USA. During the fall and the winter, then you go play professional volleyball in Europe. So Wait, all, the, what? <laughs> all the guys go play overseas during the fall and the winter. Is that because you can make money? Because that's where you make your money. Now, oh. you make money on the national team. You get paid at, on the Olympic team. Like a lot or like 12 bucks an hour? Totally depends on your tenure. Typically, it's on your tenure and also your performance, right? So if you're, if you're a longstanding, if I've been to multiple Olympics and I'm a starter, I don't know. I, I think I was making maybe 10, 11, 12 grand a month. Oh, that's, that's that's good money. Yeah, it's reasonable. Yeah, right. Um, if you're a younger player, you could start off making twelve hundred a month as you're trying to grind and get on the team. Maybe they bump you up to twenty four hundred or thirty five hundred or something. And if there's six starters at the Olympics, I'm guessing there's twelve people that travel to the Olympics. Twelve total guys go to the Olympics. And then how many people are like in the pool on the national team training, trying to make the squad there as a reserve? Like, how many people are making money on the national team? There's probably 24 guys. Okay. Makes sense. 24 guys that are in the gym trying to grind out and make a spot, um, making some money. You know, some of those guys, they might even be making 1200 I remember when I first got on the team, I think I was making 500 a month. That was a long time ago. I doubt that's how it is now. But, right. um, you know, you got you to gotta earn it. You know what I mean? A lot of guys will come try out. They'll, they'll, they'll be invited to come to the gym, and they'll, they'll be in the gym for maybe one, two weeks. And they'll, our coaching staff kind of knows whether they're good enough or not. And after a little bit of time, they'll say, hey, this isn't right time for you. Why don't you come back next summer or whatever? Right. And those guys will go play overseas. Did anybody, did anybody ever walk on at the national team? You're like, oh, that's weird. I've never heard of that guy. And he was just a rock star. Does that happen? Is there anybody that's like the Rocky? Uh, rarely. Yeah. The, the reason why I say that is because the men's volleyball overall talent pool is pretty small. So right. you kind of know everybody. Right. Right. So. It's pretty rare. Got it.
Um, yeah, but then you go play. You go play in Europe. I, I played. I played twelve professional seasons in Europe. Uh, so, so if you're spring and summer in the national team and right. you're making somewhere between twelve hundred and ten thousand dollars a month, yep. And then you're on the national team for six months out of the year, right. um, and then you leave. Obviously, there's an expectation if you want to come back to the national team six months later, you gotta stay in shape. You still have to know how to play volleyball, right? But then you go to Europe and. Um, one, why is there money to be made in Europe and not in the U.S.? And two, how much do you make? So the reason why we, you have to go to Europe or Asia, because there are this Korean League, uh, Japanese League, China, uh, Chinese League. Guys go play over there, too. Um, Dude, you're like literally a giant in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel tall in Japan. And yeah. I'm only six foot tall. I always like going to Japan. It's fun riding the subway, and everybody's the same height, and then you're like just towering over people. It's pretty funny. I love Japan. I wish I could go to Tokyo Olympics. That's going to be awesome. But um, the reason why there's no professional volleyball team, volleyball league in the U.S. is because the U.S. sports market is too saturated. Is we have too many big sports. Uh, it's just very difficult to launch another sport. L look at look at MLS. Right. Think about when MLS first started. Everyone thought it was going to fold because it was just it wasn't good because people don't want another big major league. Right. You know what I mean? Even a sport like soccer, which is like the biggest sport in the entire world by a long shot. Right. Just because it's not popular in the U.S., somebody had a vision that it could be, and it took MLS like 15 years to get ramped up. Yeah. Now it's at a different level, and they're doing good, but yeah. it took a long time. But there's still dudes on the MLS who are probably— How much are they making? Yeah, they're not the best in the world, but they're world class, and they're making a hundred grand a year, two hundred grand a year. I don't know what the league minimum in L MLS. Chris, is, you got to look that up. What's the league minimum in, in the, the MLS? Uh, MLS? Or the um, league average? No, because you got some stars that probably bump up the, the, the league average, average. Yeah, yeah, you get a Beckham or somebody like that that they want. I think it, look the league up. minimum is probably a better question to ask. But. I bet you the I, I let's take a bet on this. I bet you the let's, league let's minimum. Guess. Let's take a guess. I'm going to say a hundred grand. Are you I over? Think it's under? more than that. I think it's going to be. I think it's just, I think it's around 200. All right. Well, this will be good. Chris or a little over 200. All right. Go for it, Chris. Did you get it? 63,457. Holy shit. No way. Yeah. So here's when, the. When is that? Did it have a date? 2019. So here's the Holy only reason God. that I know this. That's crazy. So, so I took my son's five years old. And about a year ago, we took him to, you know, one of these little soccer that's camp for, things. That's for reserve players. That's for that's reserve okay. players. Oh, that's that's okay. okay. Same difference. Yeah. So, so we took our kid to a little, you know, in the Valley soccer or something. And, you know, at four years old, they, they don't even know what they're doing. They're scratching their ass. Right. Um, and there was one kid on the court who was literally just running circles around everybody. I'm like, what the fuck? It's like Pele, right? <laughs> um, so I went and I talked to the dad. And I'm like, hey, man, like, I got to know the story. Your kid's, like, got ball handling skills. He's, like, a real player at four years old. He's like, yeah, his older brother's eight. His older brother's 12. His older brother's 13. They all play at a very high level. So this guy was from Belgium. His wife was Mexican. They had four kids, and um, he told me at that one soccer practice, the only time I ever saw him, he goes, yeah, we're uh, we're packing up the whole family, and we're moving back to Belgium because I need my 12-year-old to play at higher competition. He's on the MLS Development League, yeah. and it's a joke. He's like, there's no there's no money involved. He's like, there's no sponsorship. There's no money fly, uh, f uh, flowing into the youth team. He's like, and if I want my kids to have a chance to play at the national level, we have to be in Europe. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, this guy was very humble – you know, kind of very, I'll just say it, meager living and income. 
and he was relocating six people, him, his wife, no, seven people, him, his wife, his four kids, and their mother-in-law, because, of course, Hispanic family, you got to take your mother-in-law yeah. with you. I know these <laughs> things because I married into a Hispanic family. Um, and they were all moving to Belgium on, like, 50 grand a year because wow. he needed his kids to have a better shot at soccer. So, to your point, launching a league is really hard in America. It's really hard. It, you need a lot of capital. Uh, volleyball is a very popular sport globally, though. Um, but uh, in the U.S., it's still thought of as an Olympic sport. So where did you play in Europe, and what did that look like? So I played um, seven years straight in the Italian Pro League and then uh, played two years in the Turkish Pro League. So I played Turkey and then played a year in Poland and then a year in Russia. And I also played a season in Puerto Rico. And, like, when you're on the Italy team, are you are you kind of a star? Are you like David Hasselhoff? You're like, I'm not big in America, but I'm really big in Germany. It's it's uh, it's kind of like the NBA a little bit where, um, you know, you're a foreign player playing in the Italian league. Um, all of the leagues I just mentioned to you are all very good. It's all the best players from all over the world playing in these leagues. So you're not any better than anyone else. Uh, you know, some teams are better because they have better players. Right. But um, just like the NBA, right? right? And like the Lakers are, are, you know, the Jazz are better than the Timberwolves, right? right? So, um, by the way, go go Jazz in Utah. So Salt Lake City, they're kind of dominating the league right now. So Perfect. Um, who knows what they'll do in the playoffs. But, uh, yeah, that's just how it is. And, um, you know, it's same types of things as athletes. I, ha I had an agent during all that time. Uh, the agent is looking out for you, looking for jobs. Um, uh, when I played in Italy, Italy was widely considered the best pro league in the in the world at that time, the level-wise. Do you mind if I ask what the money looks like in the pro league in Italy? So I'll give you an example. So my first contract, again, this is, I'm 22 again, right? Just came out of college, just just coming off my first Olympics. Uh, it's my first experience playing overseas. And I, your I, first paycheck, right? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, I think my original contract was $120,000 for six months. That's awesome. At 22? Fuck I was, yeah. I was stoked. You're balling out of control. Oh, yeah. You're like, I can I can afford any Honda Accord I want. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Honda Accord was way on the list. And, I mean, I bought my first house when I was, like, in my low 20s. So Amazing. Uh, and then, you know, the next year I got a little bit more next year because I was getting better. You know right. what I mean? I was getting a better name. Um, by the time I finished playing in Italy, I played for one of the best teams in the league, who's still one of the best teams in Trento. Uh, I think my contract was around maybe 250 grand at that time for six months. That's amazing. Yeah, and then I went and played in Turkey, and they, they were kind of they were flowing money there too. And I think I probably made better. It was probably 275 there, maybe up 300 my second year. Uh, then my last year, I played in Russia. Uh, I was well over 400,000 for close, six months, close to 500,000, and that was one of the best players in, in my position at that time. But we had, you had other guys that were um, considered the best players of the world at that time, and they were making over a million dollars. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing to me how different the markets are in different countries. You know, yeah. um, a friend of mine says that what ruined the heavyweight, uh, big boxing fan, he's a boxing trainer, he's like, what ruined the heavyweight division in America was professional football. Mm -hmm. He's like, because up until about the 80s when the NFL started playing, paying big bucks, you know, you had a six-foot-five black man who was 240 pounds all muscle they were the heavyweight champion of the world making big money but now that there's you know ray lewis for example 
40 years ago, he's the heavyweight champion of the world in boxing. He's not playing football because there's no money in it. But now that there's so much money in football, the talent pool of people that have been sucked out of the other sports of America now go to football. It's amazing to me that in other countries, it's a totally different game. It's a totally different, you know, economic system for basketball, for um for beach volleyball is, I know, really big in other countries, get yeah. paid <laughs> extremely well. You, um, you'd be surprised, actually. Um, it's actually an interesting, I don't know, fallacy of, of thought in the U.S. Uh, a lot of people don't realize how much more money you play, you make playing indoor volleyball than you do on the beach. Really? Yeah. Is that because AVP just markets so well? People think that that's the league to be in? or Yeah. And plus, you know, the U.S. is kind of known as a beach volleyball powerhouse. You know what I mean? It's... This is the birch place, really, of beach volleyball. And so we assume that beach volleyball is something that's major in the U.S. And although it is, and those guys out there are great athletes. They're getting it done. But, you know, if you want to make vo- if you want to make money in volleyball and you're one of the better players in, in the U.S., you're going to see those guys sticking around playing indoors because, you know, you go overseas and make five, six, seven. $800,000 and you go on the beach and if you were one of the best, you, you know, you're making, I don't, uh, I'm totally speculating here, but you're making 150 to 200. Yeah. So you're making four times as much playing indoor volleyball than you wow. are on the beach. Wow. Yeah. And you're getting skin cancer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those guys are all sponsored by uh, lotion companies. So. Exactly. <laughs> did, did you ever give that any thought, you know, cause you mentioned earlier in the podcast that like, the beach volleyball is a little bit of an older man's game. You can kind of excel as you become yeah. more proficient and more knowledgeable and you kind of know more ball placement. I love that little thing when it's like, it feels like somebody's going to kill the ball and they just do that little yeah. two, two <laughs> knuckle dink. And it's like, Oh, that was such a smart play. Like such a conservation of energy. Did right. you give any thought to moving over to beach volleyball or do you play any beach volleyball? I did. I grew up playing on the beach, love the beach game. Still do actually. Um, now that I can't play indoors anymore because my body would just, be like what are you doing dumbass <laughs> and my knees would just be screaming at me and even when i go play in the sand now my knees hurt but uh not nearly as bad and so i i do i still enjoy playing out there and um did i give it any thought to, you do see a lot of guys finish out an indoor career and then go try their luck on the beach because you still you still feel like you got a little left to give the beach game uh, is kind of a natural progression where it's not as hard on your body. And if you put in a lot of effort, you can actually do pretty well because you got to get the base of how to play the game really well. And um, But for me, I played at the international indoor level for so long, almost 15 years. Uh, I was really ready to just not play for a while. Yeah. And I actually went stepped away from the game for like, and I didn't touch a volleyball for like six years. Really? Yeah, I was really done. I was like, okay, like, I need to go figure out my life now. Because, you know, there's that interesting transition period where you're like, okay, I've re- decided to retire. Now what am I going to do? You, you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. when you're in it, when you're in it playing, you're not really making a ton of plans because you kind of, you feel a little bit invincible, right? right. You're like, I'm fucking, the, I'm the top of the world, right? But then when you start hitting on the tail end, and then when it's over, you're like, like, oh shit, now I gotta figure out what I'm actually gonna do. And I mean, the standard answer is, well, I'm gonna go into coaching, right? And I actually had a coaching background already. I owned a small business um, around, I had a coaching volleyball camp company that we did volleyball camps all around the US. And I coached a year at BYU, actually. I took a year off from playing professionally to go be the head coach at BYU in 2006, 2007. 
and so I had a coaching background, so it was kind of logical, and I was looking at different coaching opportunities um, at that time. But, uh, you know, I randomly bumped into a good friend of mine that I've known many years, and he said, hey, I saw you retired. What are you doing now? And I said, I, I, I'm looking for that next chapter. And he goes, you should come talk to me about what I do at this um, consulting firm. I, I think you'd be really good doing management consulting. And I was like, sounds great. So he, uh, my firm has written a bunch of New York Times bestselling books. He, he gave me the books to read. And I'm like, man, there's a lot of like connective tissue to what I just experienced in the, on the volleyball court to what um, organizational co company, you know, teams are trying to accomplish that I think I could probably bring a lot of value and an interesting perspective to. And so met with the founders of our company at that time and, and they thought it was a good fit too. And, and that was uh, about eight and a half years ago when I started doing the management consulting work that I'm doing now. So there is that weird thing. Cause we're, you know, we're both in our forties and, and I feel like professionally, I'm just hitting my stride. Like I'm kind of peaking at 42. I kind of figure like my best earning years are going to be about 42 to 50. I've still got enough energy to do the side hustle of the podcast and the coaching business. And right. I still do 50 hours a week in the mortgage business. But how weird is it when you peak at like 29? Like I, I kind of think of it as like Guns N' Roses. Everybody's like, well, why is Axl Rose so fucked up and on drugs and fat? It's like, well, if you peaked at 28, you'd probably be fucked up too. <laughs> Kurt Cobain. So, yeah, Kurt Cobain, exactly. So yeah. what, what's that like when you're like, you're at the top of the world, you're playing in Italy, you're making big boy money for yeah. six months. You know, um, you know, I, I know you're you're happily married and you come from a Mormon faith, but maybe if you were a lesser man, you'd have women throwing themselves at you. Like, right. what happens when you peak at 30 and then at 40, you're like, what do I do with the rest of my life? You're right there. I mean, you said it perfectly because it's so true. It's, you know, I think you could probably have the same conversation with, with somebody that's in the NBA or somebody that's NFL is a little tougher because your career is typically not along, but somebody that plays Major League Baseball you know, they're probably going to be in their prime right around 29, 30, playing Major League Baseball. Um, it's tough. You know what I mean? It's uh, you, There aren't a lot of resources out there for athletes to figure out what they're going to do because when you're 29 or 30, you're not thinking – you're thinking you're at your peak. You're ready to go conquer the world. You're not thinking about what you want to do when you retire. You know what I mean? But then that time sneaks up on you pretty quick. And there is a time when you start going – you look in the mirror and you're like – shit like i don't know what the next 10 years of my life looks like by the way i have no experience in anything except playing professional sports which i mean how much experience is that going to give me in the real world right um You're like I, mean, I don't know how to look at tax returns i, I can't go I be a loan officer i don't officer. know how to manage a PL <laughs> list uh, you know what i mean i don't know how to manage a team of engineers right. you know what i mean and i don't know how to be an accountant and and uh but you know, I, I don't know. It, it was a, it was a tough transition. There was about a month there where I was in real limbo, and I was like, "Well, I got coaching is the logical choice. I'll do that because I got to do something, right. right?" And you know, I think I was fortunate enough to kind of um, find this this uh, avenue, and uh, and and actually be really good at it. Yeah, which I think a lot of what I learned in becoming an Olympic gold medalist helps you figure things out quick you got to be a quick study and in management consulting you have to be really sharp and you almost have to like convince people quickly that you are able to bring value to them right and um initially there was th it was really tough to do what i was doing because to, in the role that i was in 
I had to be able to be a really good, incredible consultant. I had to be able to sell because a p- large part of our, our ability to make money was selling deals and opportunities into these companies. I had to be a really good executive coach, which is another skill set that I had to do. And I had to be really credible and good in front of a room. So like when I was leading training or I was leading development areas or I was guiding senior teams through different processes, you had to be really credible in front of a group. And I'd never done any facilitation work in the past. I mean, I'd been in front of crowds and stuff, so I knew what it was like, but not not delivering content or things like that. And so I had to figure things out fast. And uh, I think a lot of the things that I learned um, – just trying to continue to grind and be the best at a sport helped me figure this out too. And uh, like I said, I mean, it was eight and a half years ago, so things have been going really well, except, you know, 2020 was devastating for everybody. And and the service industry, like management consulting, was one of those industries that just got pummeled. Because... you know, even even without COVID, when a, when a company has hard times, one of the first things they stop investing in is development. Right. And Which so, is funny because that's probably when they need it the most. It's when they need to lean in the most, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been talking to a lot of my coaching clients and I was like, hey, we need to get you to the point where when your income drops by 50%, because it's going to happen. Like Amazon's going to figure out how to do mortgages or rates are going to go to 6% and half the people are going to fall out of our industry. And so I keep telling my coaching clients, like the reason you guys want to follow through with this plan and keep filling your pipeline and building those relationships is because when, when, Revenue drops by 50%. That's when you need to be able to thrive and stick around in the industry and still invest in coaching and still invest in your marketing because right. that's when everybody else is going to fall by the wayside. Right. And, um, and I don't know if they believe me. I hope they do. Um, but, you know, selfishly, I also want them to have enough money to keep paying for coaching. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'd be interested to know, is there anything from your Mormon upbringing or the work ethic of just wanting to be great at volleyball how is that translated over to the business to career? Because I'm, I, I, one of the greatest tragedies I think about Kobe dying is that I feel like he was going to be that, um, that example or that pillar to a bunch of professional athletes of like, hey, just, just when athletics are over, that's okay. That's just the start. You have all these tools in your toolbox to go be awesome at this other stuff, whether right. it was filmmaking or consulting or venture capital, venture capital stuff. Yep. Um, and and now that's sadly lost forever. Um, what do you think those skill sets were from your youth that have now carried over to business consulting? So uh, it, it, it was, it was serendipitous for me because, um, the consulting work that I do is targeted on only two things. We only work with organizations on two things, creating greater accountability within an organization, both personally team and organizational accountability. And The other thing that we do is culture management. So we help organizations more effectively manage their cultures. And we actually, in turn, meld those two things together. And we help organizations transition to a culture of accountability, which we would argue is the most effective culture an organization can create. Now, I learned pretty quickly uh, through volleyball and through, uh, you know, playing at the highest levels that culture was massive. No team that I was on that was successful um, had a horrible culture. There was always some type of team function that worked well. There was absolute role clarity. Accountability played massive into all of that. 
um, you know, we had a leader, a head coach, a coaching staff that was instilling the right type of culture into the team. Culture was something that wasn't just happening to us. It was something that we were deliberately managing every day. That's what we're teaching our clients to do because a lot of organizations, they just don't realize the impact that culture has on their ability to achieve the results that they can. They think hap- culture is just something that happens, right? And it, or it's an HR program, right? Go get your HR people. To go. We, need, we need to fix our culture, so HR, get on that. That's not how it works. And so we, we provide organizations a, a really high-functioning vehicle that allows them to accelerate the change that they need to see in their organizational culture and instill the correct amount of accountability to allow them to do that. And there were so many, so many experiences that I had that I could link that I was, that I had playing professional sports to how to do that within teams. You know, and winning a gold medal obviously adds some pretty instant credibility when you're working with senior teams, because I don't have a law degree. You know, I I look at the, the rest of our consulting team, we've got, you know, graduated top of his class at Georgetown Law, and then we got a PhD over here. And then everybody has an MBA. I didn't have any of that. You know what I mean? This guy was a VP of sales at American Express for, 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 for 18 years. Right. All I have is a gold medal. But what's really interesting about a gold medal is that that brought as much or more credibility than all of those things. Because people, the gold medal is a symbol of excellence. And there's not a company out there today, anywhere in the world, whose CEO or senior team doesn't want to produce excellence. So you've produced excellence, something that not a lot of people have done. Tell me how you did that. I want to know, because that's what I want. And it's like, well, let me tell you about it. Yeah. You you would get along so well with the CEO of the company I work for, Movement Mortgage, Casey Crawford. He won a Super Bowl with uh, Tampa Bay, uh, was a tight end. You guys are built very similar, um, <laughs> although he might do a little bit more CrossFit than you right now. Um, and, so uh, don't mess with him. Don't mess with him, yeah. And he's also like a brown belt in jiu-jitsu. He's like... Really it, don't it, mess with him. Funny story. We were at President's Club, you know, our little uh, top producers retreat, and I had... The, the, our company is known for making great T-shirts, so I have this green T-shirt that I love wearing, and, and my wife sees me in it all the time. And then we were at President's Club, and our CEO, who literally looks like a Greek god, it's totally unfair, walks out in the same T-shirt. My, my wife turns to me, and she's like, honey, she's like, don't wear that T-shirt ever again. She's like, unless you're going to look like that. Just don't. I'm like, great, hon, great. Now, our CEO is a triathlete. So yeah, I can, exactly. You, you, I, can, uh, I can attest. You can attest, exactly. Um, so, you know, it's interesting because he's talked about um, the, the benefits of playing under a coach. And, oh, my God, I'm going to forget who his coach was. Uh, Chris, you're gonna have to look this up. Who's the coach of Tampa Bay when they won the uh, the NFL championship? Now he's a quarterback um, guru. He commentates on ESPN. Anyway, we'll we'll get his name here in a second. Um, and and Casey talks about when he walked into Tampa Bay. You know, they kind of went from dead last to winning the NFL championship because they created Sounds a like culture. Sounds like what Brady did last year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sounds exactly what Brady did. Gruden, that's who it is. Gruden. John Gruden. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, he said there was something different. And you alluded to this earlier of like. Versus we're going to do a good job. Like, no, we're going to win it all. So, you know, you mentioned this earlier that you guys had a coaching change leading up to that gold medal run. What did you observe in that coach where they were like, okay, we're not just going to be good. We're not just here to have fun and and do a good job. We're here to win the fucking gold. Right. Like what, what was that culture that was built from him over the course of four years? There were a couple of big things actually. Um, One was early on in that quad, we actually got together as a team and did and put together a mission statement. Um, because he needed us to buy into the vision of being the best, not just having him say it. 
And uh, I remember it's funny. We went to some hotel and we all got together. We did this mission statement thing and we were all looking at each other like, what the hell are we doing? This, this is so stupid. Like, what is this going to do? Right. But that actually, you talk to a lot of those guys and they would say that that was kind of a plant the flag type of moment where there was this different type of commitment at that point around being the best. And then another thing that this coach did was he would consistently talk about it. So like before, you'd say, you guys will win gold. It's like, yeah, we're going to win gold. Yeah, yeah. And it was kind of like, no, I mean, not really. But yeah, I'd like to, Yeah, but we're not it's really. It's a nice thought. So yeah, it sounds great. But this guy was like every day. It was like, you guys know what we're doing today, right? We're, we're, we're working to be the best team in the world at the Olympics. And we're going to be the best team. And he would say it all the time. And it was almost like when he would say it, you'd be, man, like that's a pretty ballsy thing to just throw out there every day. Like, you know what I mean? There's a lot of risk in failure in saying that, knowing how hard it's going to be, right? But then after a while, you start going, yeah, we're, we're fucking going to be the best, right? You start buying into it a little bit. And by the end of the quad, I told you, we played that tournament before the Olympics and we just balled out. And it was like, something like a, a switch has been flipped here and and uh we feel really confident about what we're doing when we're going to beijing little did we know what was going to happen in beijing right and it's not like again we didn't we didn't rise to the occasion so people say did you guys like come together and play for your coach at that time and it gave you this extra motivation and i'm like no we just went out and executed and it because we were ready to go out and execute yeah. That's why we won. It wasn't like we came together for this grand cause of honoring our coach's family. You know what I mean? That wasn't right. it at all. It was because he prepared us in that moment to go be Olympic champions. And all we had to do was go execute. And that's what we did. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I've heard, um, I think it was Darren Hardy. I saw some talk of his, you know, big uh, business coach, wrote the entrepreneur's um, roller coaster and compound effect. And he gave a similar talk where he was talking about, you know, we have this winner's bias in America where somebody wins the gold medal and they put a mic in front of your face and you're like, well, we worked really hard. Right. And so everybody thinks like, oh, okay, cool. Well, they worked really hard and they wanted to win the gold. It's like, well, every other team that was there also worked Rich. really hard yeah. and wanted to win the gold. Nobody yeah. showed up saying like, good, I really hope I take 16th place at this tournament. Right. It's like no, nobody showed up wanting to be the loser. Right. And so it's something more than just I worked hard and I wanted to win. It's like, no, there was some other ingredient or there was something that went into it where it sounds like with you guys, the coach actually made you believe you were going to be a gold medalist. Right. Right. We didn't have that before. We really didn't. You know, it's interesting because we also teach this in our consulting work is how influential the beliefs people hold are in regards to what you see them do. And in fact, it's, it's, it's the way you think that drives what you do. I mean, think about it. a really easy example is if you think that a restaurant is good, what will your action be? You'll enjoy it. You'll go, you'll go to the restaurant. Pretty simple, right? Uh, if you think that there are no cops around when you're driving, what are you going to do? 105 miles you're an go hour. fast. <laughs> so the way you think drives what you do. So if you get a team of 12 guys battling it out every day, thinking they're going to be the best in the world, what are you going to go see them do? They're going to go battle to be the best in the world. If you've got a group of guys that are battling and they're thinking that, they're going to be really good, right? They're going to go play good, like your, your example. Yeah, we played really good. That doesn't, at, the, at that level, 
that's not enough. In fact, the chasm is wide because everybody there wants to play good. Right. You got to go there thinking you're the best. That's a different mindset. So, you, so when you think you are the best, you tend to show up to practice differently. You nutrition, your nutrition's different. Your sleep is different. The way you strategize is different. The way you communicate on the court is different. The way you execute is different. Everything about that quad leading up to those games was different. And we all know the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. If you want a different outcome, you've got to do things differently. And that's what we needed on that team. That's awesome. You know, so you mentioned that uh, having a gold medal gives you a certain cachet in the business world. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you if there's a couple cool stories from after you won the gold medal. When we were having dinner, you mentioned you got to go to the ESPYs and and you mentioned meeting Kobe Bryant and some yeah. stuff like that. So what what are some what are some cool tangential things that happened from being a gold medalist? Man, yeah, the ESPYs was ESPYs was dope. Um, uh, it was just a cool experience, you know, to be a part of kind of the Hollywood life, you know, which I'd never experienced, of course. There was the red carpet, and all the stars were there, and Samuel L. Jackson was hosting, and and uh, the event was really cool, and we got to go to a cool after party, too. And I remember, I remember at the after party, it was just so surreal. You know, everyone's just kind of mingling. It's packed. Everybody from the ESPYs was there. We were at some they, – they booked out some club or something in Hollywood – and I'm talking to a f- couple people, and it, it's tight, you know? And I hear some conversation going on behind me, and so I'm like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. So I turn around, and I turn around, and it's Samuel L. Jackson, uh, Mike Wilbon, and Mike Tyson. And I just kind of naturally kind of just go into the conversation with them. <laughs> and I, I don't remember what we were talking about. It was some sport thing or something, but – it was just so weird because it was like Mike Tyson was like right here. You know what I mean? It's like Mike Tyson got the face tattoo and everything. And then Will Bond's bringing his like super knowledge, you know, and then Samuel Jackson's cracking jokes and, and uh, yeah, we're just rapping like we all knew each other. You know what I mean? And <laughs> I had a couple of those experiences where I was, I remember once um, after the Olympics, Oprah did a massive show. And so uh, she brought back all of the Olympians after Beijing. So we got to, they flew us out to Chicago and we got to go on Oprah and that was gnarly, uh, interacting with her and, and talking to her and, and, uh, also interacting with the other Olympics Olympians at that time, all the NBA guys, that's where I got to hang out with Kobe quite a bit, became fairly close with Darren Williams, who was playing for the jazz at the time. And, and I was living in Salt Lake and, and, uh, eventually, you know, kind of became friends over his house we had dinner we'd go play golf i remember uh me and darren and, and kyle corver and his little brother would go play golf me and darren and kyle corver and tony finau and his little brother would go we'd go play golf in utah and uh, that was that was fun to go hang out with those guys and uh um at beijing where we trained the u.s basketball team also trained and so we would let's say we would train from like nine to 11 that the NBA guys would come in right after us. They tear down our nets, set up the basketball courts, and then they would train from 11 to one or whatever. 
And so as we were finishing practice, the NBA guys would be coming in and getting ready for practice. And so you'd have like this 10, 15 minute period where you would just rap with the guys and they would just talk and they'd say, Hey, we saw your guys' game. And you'd say, Hey, I saw you guys play too. And they're like, it looks like you guys are playing good. And, uh, one of the days I sat next to Kobe and, uh, I knew that he spent a lot of large part of his childhood in Italy. And I spent seven years in Italy, and so I started rapping with him in Italian a little bit because I knew he speak Italian, and I sp I speak Italian as well, and so it was kind of cool to have something in common, and, and yeah, it was it was cool getting to know those guys a little bit. Did you ever regret that you didn't play basketball and make seventeen million dollars a year instead of you know five hundred thousand in Italy? <laughs> you know, it's funny because I grew up loving basketball. I I, I still do love basketball. Um, I, before I played volleyball, I was all in on basketball. Then when I got into high school, um, my freshman year of high school, I was 5'10". So, you know, I wasn't tall. I wasn't short. You know, 5'10", it's about normal. And I tried out for the basketball team, and I got cut. And so I'm like, man. And I made the volleyball team, and I started getting better. Then my sophomore year, I was 6'4". So I went 5'10 to 6'4 in one year. And by that time, I was already an all-league volleyball player. And the basketball coach kept coming back to me. And they're like, hey, I mean, you're, you're going to try out again this year, right? And I'm like, ah, I'm kind of like into volleyball. And he's like, no, 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 you got to try out. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm going to stick with volleyball. Like, oh, man. And then my junior year, the next year, I was 6'7". So I grew <laughs> nine inches in two years. And he comes back to me again, and he's like, dude, you got to try out for basketball again. <laughs> and I'm like, by that time, I was, like, already first-team All-American in the nation in volleyball. And I'm like, dude, I got, I'm all in on volleyball right now. And he's like, I kind of blew it, huh? And I'm like, yeah, a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> so, wait, you didn't play volleyball to your freshman year of high school? I played in eighth grade as well in junior high well. So, you went – I mean, this is pretty crazy. You went from eighth grade not knowing anything about volleyball. And I was bad in eighth grade. Okay. I was jungle ball. Okay, yeah. until until 10th grade, you were All-American? 10th grade, I was All-League, All-Tournament. I wasn't quite All-American yet, but then junior year, I was um, all first-team All-American in the U.S. for high school. So Mr. Bird changed your life. Oh, yeah. Oh, he was massive influence on my life. Yeah, big shout-out to Bird, who's, wow. who's going through, as I mentioned to you, he's, uh, he was diagnosed with brain cancer, which it, Mike Bird is one of those people that are you constantly think that is kind of invincible right like he's one he's one of those guys like you, i thought he was going to live forever right because you even said like he's one of the most in shape guys i've ever known like he looks like a triad he he looks like lance armstrong when lance armstrong was like in his prime right and so taller all, yeah a little bit taller and way better at volleyball than lance but probably right. maybe not as good on a bike but i thought he was gonna live forever and then i got the news and i was just devastated i but Knowing him and how competitive he is, he just took it and just now he's grinding it. And I'm like, if anybody is going to beat brain cancer, it's Mike Bird. Yeah. I got a funny story about uh, Mike Bird. When I was in high school, I wrestled, which was the same season as volleyball. And I, I was mentioning at dinner, I should have done volleyball because I really enjoy volleyball. And it's a little weird as a 42-year-old man to call the guys and be like, hey, you want to come over and wrestle? Like, that's, that's, a, little, that's a little weird. You know, I wanna, wish I could go play volleyball. Jump, you want to uh, put on the unitard? Yeah, yeah. Put, put on that singlet, you know, with now my pot oh, belly. Yeah. And yeah, that's not, not sexy. My wife doesn't even want to see that. So, um, so I remember we were in the same season. You guys would be in the gym practicing, and we would be in there wrestling. Yeah. 
And uh, our wrestling coach, who to me is like uh, my previous wrestling coach, Mike Young, was like a man amongst men. Tall guy, super strong. Every time somebody on the team started to have a little bit of an ego, he would just get on there and pin them and just destroy them in about three seconds. And uh, I thought he was in great shape. But, you know, he was your average middle age, probably late 40s, early 50s, little pot belly, you know. Right. And then I go to, like, hit the showers or something, and Coach Mike Bird's there taking off his shirt. And, I, I mean, just look chiseled like, you know, like Sylvester Stallone in Rocky Four, just abs that I didn't even know where they were coming from. And I was like, dude, I should have played volleyball. <laughs> like, I'm in, I'm in pretty good shape, but I'm starving myself here to make weight in wrestling. And the volleyball players all look like they should be in a movie. And I, <laughs> I was that that's my lasting thought of, like, Coach Mike Bird. That's funny. Um, so that's that's some crazy stuff. So from the from the ESPYs to traveling in, in Europe, what are some other opportunities that presented themselves, you know, playing overseas and, like, What's some what's some cool experiences that you had? Oh my gosh, that that could be a whole nother show. I, I living in Europe is a trip. It it's a grind playing professionally overseas. Um, it, it's just tough, you know. You got you get dedicating the majority of your year in a place that you don't know, oftentimes with a language you don't speak. It, it, you got to talk about being adaptable. You just got to make it happen and make it work. I will tell you. Um, so my last year playing overseas, I played in Siberia, Russia. I, I played in the capital city of Siberia, Russia. And I played there from October until May. That sounds so, miserable. So I couldn't have picked any colder months to be in Siberia. And it's just, it was so gnarly. <laughs> I, I don't know how else to explain it. It was, uh, I'll tell you one example. So um, I tell us quite a few Russian stories because they're just funny. But when, when I remember the first day I landed there, uh, I played in a city called Novozabirsk, which is the capital of Siberia. And uh, my team's there to greet me at the airport. And one of the first things our team manager tells me is, um, you know, welcome, blah, 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 blah. We're going to take you to your apartment. Here's your car. Da, da, da. It's standard stuff, right? And he goes, tomorrow we're going to pick you up and you're going to go get your jacket. And it's, it's October, so it's not... It's not, it's not super duper cold yet, right? It's probably in like the 50s, high 40s. It's a yeah. little chilly. Yeah, but it's Palmdale in the winter. You're okay, right? Yeah. And, I, and I say to him, I go, no, no, I'm good. I bought a jacket. I did. I just bought a really nice down Nike jacket, knowing that it was going to be cold, right? And he kind of goes in his Russian way. He goes, <laughs> yeah, like, you don't have a jacket. And I'm like, no, seriously, I, I bought it. It's really nice. It's in my bag. I can show you. And he's like, uh, stupid American, you know, you know <laughs> jacket. <laughs> he goes, believe me, you're going to want to go get your jacket. And I'm like, all right, whatever. So the next day they pick me up. I go to this, like, tailor place. They're measuring me, like, head to toe. And I'm like, this is kind of weird. And then I kind of forget about it, right? A couple weeks pass. I finally... I go to uh, our gym, and my, we have a locker room. And my locker, there's this huge box. It's like a cardboard box. It's like, I don't even know. It's like five feet tall and like three feet in. <laughs> and I'm like, guys, like, what is this? And they're like, that's your jacket. And I'm like, my what? And I open it up, and it's stuffed full with this black mass. And I take it out, and it's this jacket. It weighs like 15 pounds. <laughs> and and, and I, I'm like looking at it, and it's like, and I put it on, and like the like the cuffs are like that, and the <laughs> the hood is massive, and it's got like this thick foxtail over the top of the thing, and it goes all the way down to my feet, and I'm like, "What, well, guys? 
when am I ever going to wear this thing? I look inside the lapel and it says minus 40 degrees. And I'm like, when am I ever going to wear this? And then they're like, just the weight. <laughs> and, and I'm like, all right. And I'll tell you right now, if I didn't have that jacket, I would be dead. That's how cold it is in, in Siberia. Like, remember, how does even how does I, anything function there? The water, the fuel, it's like unbelievable. Th that city that I lived in had two million people lived in it. Two million people. I remember one day, I'll never forget this. It was like the end of January, so we were like knee deep in winter. I, I, I we had an early morning practice. I step out of my apartment. There's a bank across the street from my apartment with one of those like revolving th digital thermometers. Mm -hmm. And I walk out of my apartment, and I'm thinking, dude, it's cold today. And it was cold every day. But I'm like, there's something going on here. I look up at the thermometer. Guess, Take a guess what it read. Negative 5. Negative 56 degrees. Shut the fuck. How is that even possible? Minus 56 degrees. And people always ask me, they go, is that Celsius or Fahrenheit? And I tell them, when it gets that cold... It doesn't matter. It does not matter. There becomes a point, this is true, where Fahrenheit and Celsius actually reach each other when you're negative. And there's no disparity anymore. I don't know what the actual temperature is. We could look it up, but it was minus 56 degrees. You know, Yukon Sarah actually mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah, we interviewed a gal who lives in the Yukon, like way out in the middle of nowhere. And she's like, oh, yeah, zero. Woo, warm day. I'm yeah. like, zero is warm? Oh, gnarly. I'm like, here in California, when it's 60 degrees, I'm like, oh, I better put on a sweater. It's a little <laughs> nipply. Um, negative 50 degrees. Jesus. No, I, I agree with what she's saying because there would be days when the sun would come out finally and it would be a nice day. It was maybe 15 below zero and the parks would be completely full of people. Bombs. And the number's kids. negative 40, by the way. Negative 40. Negative 40, it negative 40 is when Celsius and Fahrenheit collide, and they, they no longer are Oh, different. my God. Negative 15, parks totally full, moms and their kids, because it's finally a nice day at negative 15 degrees. Kids on the swings, going on the merry-go-round, going down slides, because it's 15 below. Prior to this podcast, if you would have told me, can humans survive at negative 50 degrees, yes or no? I would have said absolutely not. Only, Their lungs freeze. Only if dead. they have the Russian jacket. Yeah, exactly. The <laughs> Russian jacket. Like, see, this is why we can never go to war again, like large-scale war as a country. Because Russia or China, they're going to fuck us up. Because <laughs> Americans have all become pansies. Like, I was in the army, and I can only imagine, like, if I show up for a war and it's negative 50, I'm just going to ask somebody to shoot me. I have no interest in fighting a war in negative 50. Like, your gun won't even work. No. Um, My car, it, it, very few people have garages. So you got to park your car outside. Yeah, everything so, freezes. So I would go to we'll get up in the morning, and it during the night, it's, it's 40, 50 below zero. I wake up in the morning, and I pray in my car that my car starts. And I had a brand new car. So I get in my car. I would sit in there, and I would, like, you know, you click the thing one, and it kind of warms up the engine a little bit. I'm like, all right, let's give it a shot. <laughs> and I turn the ignition, and you could literally feel the engine block going, like, just breaking up all the stuff until finally was the oil was you know uh, smooth enough to get going but you could like feel the engine going i would see people that would have like their car would be in their parking spot and then it, the parking spot would be right in front of their kitchen window so they'd have a bottom apartment 
<laughs> so they would take an extension cord and plug it into their kitchen and then take a hair dryer and open up their hood and air and then hair dry their engine block to try to heat it up. Just enough to get the oil. Just enough to get the oil going and get the car started. Oh my god. It was gnarly, man. It was I was like, where am I? Like, what is going on right now? <laughs> That's What's maybe happening? maybe not worth the money. Um, so wait, what happens when you show up for the Russian national team? And I'm imagining there's some guys that only speak Russian and some guys that only speak Italian and you yeah. speak English and maybe some Italian and maybe some broken Russian. Like, what are the dynamics of playing on an international team where everybody's international? Yeah, that's 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 tough. It's um, like in Russia. Yeah, you're right. I mean, very few of the guys spoke good English. Most of them spoke like broken English. You know what I mean? We did it. Our team was good, uh, which meant that I had a number of their uh, Russian national team, actual players on our team. Those guys are like well-traveled. They might have even played in different leagues outside of Russia. And they, the universal language in volleyball pr is pretty much English. And so oh. those guys spoke pretty good English. Um, our coach spoke zero English, which for me was fantastic because he was an idiot. He didn't know what he was doing. He was a horrible volleyball coach. And so not having to communicate with him on a regular basis was actually beneficial for me. <laughs> Our assistant coach was Italian, funny enough. So we would just speak in Italian. He also spoke pretty good English, but we were, just, we were the only two guys on the team that spoke Italian. And so we would just talk about the coach. <laughs> Nobody knew what we were saying. And that was amazing. Cool. That was pretty cool. Yeah. But, Until um, the KGB comes in and takes you <laughs> takes you to the gulag because somebody in the KGB definitely oh, speaks I Italian. Some, I had some gnarly experiences with the Russian police. I, I remember not only did they tell me we're going to go get your jacket when I land there, but our team manager goes, um, hey, Ryan, this is serious. Listen up here. This is your cell phone. Right now there's one number that's programmed in it. It's my number. There will be a time during your time here when the police will pull your car over and ask you for papers and you do that all the time, right? They shake people down, whatever it is over in Russia that they do. I don't know what they're asking for because it's all in Russian. So I'm like, and he goes, if that happens, when that happens, I want you to take your phone out, find my number, dial it and hand your phone to the police officer. I'm like, okay, this is day one. You're like, am I going to get shot in the head? I seriously, or? I'm like, what, like, what should I be worried? And he's like, just do what I say and you'll be fine. Gosh. So, uh, two, three, probably three and a half, four months in, never got pulled over. Totally fine. Then one day I'm going to practice. I'm going on a roundabout. I come out of the roundabout going towards our gym. And sure enough, there's a cop with the AK-47 pulls me over taps on my window with the AK-47. I roll down the window, and he says something in Russian pretty, I mean, it, he was not happy. Plus, he's standing outside in 45-degree weather, right? Minus 45-degree weather. But so I very slowly take my phone, find our team manager's number, I dial it, and I hand it to the guy, and he, with his gun, says, get, like, get that away from me. I don't, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, no, you need to take this. So I hand it to him. He finally picks it up and he says something. And then he's like, listen, I can see him kind of like listening. And his face kind of changes. And he hands me back the phone. He goes, sorry, you can, you can go. And I moved on. <laughs> and luckily he didn't get shot by the AK-47. Yeah. And the whole time I'm, I'm thinking, 
man, I wish I could know what was said in that conversation. Like, yeah, I, I'm almost like, I hope your family's okay. As I'm like driving <laughs> away. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. What is, what is it like in Russia? Cause you know, I don't know what it's like in Russia. And I, I've, I have a friend who's done some business there and I won't mention who, it, what his name is or what company he works for, but he works for an investment bank. And he's like, yeah, when you work in Russia, you basically just anytime company A is company buying company B, you know, you got to account for like a 25% margin of like fraud and basically mafia kickbacks and like, you know, government endowments, which is basically kickbacks to the right. government. And he's like, you know, he's trying to explain it to me and I just don't even get it. Like, yeah. what, what is it like living there? It's a, uh, it's a trip. I mean, it's, it's a different culture, right? I mean, it's, 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 uh, people are regarded. It's very difficult to get into people. Um, walk down the street nobody looks you in the eye if you catch eye contact they're like what do you like what do you want right um so it's like suspicious a fair super word suspicious Interesting. Yeah. and a little bit of like if i don't get buying then i'm not gonna have anything so there's a little bit of a hoarding mentality because people are surviving right so i would go to the grocery store for instance and I'd see this like pallet and it's empty and it says bananas on it. I'm thinking, dude, I would love a banana right now because it's hard to find fresh vegetables, fresh fruit. You're in the, you're in fucking Siberia, you know. And what, what, I mean? what year is this? This was in uh, uh, 2011. Okay, my last year. And I'm thinking, dude, when the bananas come out, I'm gonna be stoked. I'm gonna get some bananas. So. Um, I finally see the dude pulling in the, the cart, the crate with the bananas. And I'm on the other side of the grocery store. So I'm, I'm thinking, oh, cool, the bananas are here. By the time I make it from that side of the grocery store to the bananas, all gone. Whole pallet of fruit, gone. As soon as the guy puts the bananas on the pallet, people are swarming, grabbing as much as they can. And they're taking all the bananas. And by the time I get there, there's no more bananas left. And I'm like, dude, like this is gnarly. It was like it was like when COVID first started and everyone was going crazy on the toilet paper. Toilet paper, weirdest thing. And the disinfectant wipes and stuff, yeah. right? And that's what it was like. But it's not that every day. And it's I get it because look, if I don't get fresh fruit and vegetables and they finally get some, I want to grab some, but it's it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. I, I remember um, my favorite book, what I, which I've referenced several times on this podcast, is uh, Basic Economics by Thomas Sal, mm -hmm. and uh, he talks about in that book one of the things that broke the back of you know communist Russia uh, was Gorbachev came to visit, I think it was Bush Senior, and Gorbachev, the president of one of the largest countries in the world, was fascinated by U.S. grocery stores. Uh. He's like. How do you have this many products, and and how do the shelves stay full, and how is everybody this polite at the grocery store? He was like absolutely dumbfounded by American grocery stores, something you and I take totally for granted. Totally, because in Russia, to your point, if there's fucking bananas, there's a raid on bananas because yep. you ain't gonna get them for a couple more weeks. The f your food there is white. It's white. <laughs> what do you mean? We it's white. I mean, have we'd have team dinners, and I'm not joking. Oftentimes, my team dinner would be chicken breast white chicken breast spaghetti noodles with no pasta sauce just maybe some olive oil and some parmesan cheese so white on white on white and then a bowl of chicken broth white soup with an egg white cooked egg white yeah sounds really healthy but just super bland it's like there's no where are the nutrients there right where are the minerals <laughs> right, right. <laughs> 
You're not getting a lot of minerals and nutrients from white, 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 and white with white inside of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and I'm like, guys, like, can, like, can I get a salad? Yeah. Like, do you have any fruit? Like, do you have some sriracha? Do you have some sriracha so I can turn this red? And they're and they're like laughing. They're like, you forget, we are in the middle of Siberia. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing that anybody lives there, much and less it, two million people. Right? Yeah, it's it's it, it was it was a trip, man. It was the volleyball. I give it. I'll give it up though. The volleyball in Russia was fantastic, but at that time, by far the best volleyball league in the world. Just really? so much talent, and they were paying the most money, so they would get the best foreign players. So they'd have all the best Brazilians would come play. All the best Serbians would come play. All the best Americans were playing there, because the, and in order to get those players, you just had to pay a ton of money. And that's yeah. why there were guys making nine million. I mean, nine hundred thousand million million plus dollars yeah. to go play there. Because to be fair, to get somebody to go from Huntington Beach to Siberia, you yeah. got to pay them a million bucks. Or even the beaches of Italy. Oh, you know, going and playing in Rome. It, you know they're going to pay you in Rome, but to get th- to go to Rome, then to go have to go play in Kuzbas, Russia, or Novosibirsk, or you know Yekinenbrad or whatever. <laughs> you know, look, Moscow, Saint Petersburg, a little bit different. Yeah, a little bit more cosmopolitan. It, it's you go to Moscow and you're like, dude, this is crazy. I mean, there's Lamborghinis all over the place, there's Ferraris. It's like Beverly Hills, pretty much. Right. I've heard like Gucci, some of the hottest Pradas, women in the world all over there. St. Petersburg's kind of like that, right? But um, Novosibirsk was a five and a half hour flight to Moscow. Wait, from Moscow to to my city, five and a half hour flight. Oh then, my God. then it's twelve and a half, thirteen hours to New York, and then it's another five hours to Salt Lake. Oh, so I was just crushed flying there, and I and I went back home quite often because I wouldn't allow my wife at that time to come out because it was just like our plan was is i was going to go out there maybe three weeks get settled get the apartment get the car and i i called my ex-wife now but my wife at the time and because we had kids and stuff and i'm like there's no way i'm gonna let you guys come out here if i took you away from our beautiful home in in you know salt lake and alpine utah and brought you here to have to stay for seven months you're gonna resent me for the rest of my life well, it turns out that happened anyway, so... It very much happened. <laughs> but not for that reason. Not for that reason. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, yeah, so so you finish up that, you know, you finish up that international travel. And, and by the way, when you're playing in an international league, is it like a regional league where you're only playing in Russia? Or were you flying to Italy to play Italian league? You know, flying to the world champion in uh, the whatever, uh, 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 Saudi Arabia or something yeah. like that? Or what was it like? It's, uh, it's exactly like... Um, like soccer over in europe so like if you're playing in the premier league in the uk um you only play in the uk right you play in the premier league but if you are the best team you also play in champions league so champions league is the typically the top through two three four teams in the all of the leagues right go play in a major in a big tournament for for the champions league uh, winner which is in essence the best club team in the world right and um, volleyball is the same thing. So you have league play, which is only in Russia. But the best teams also are playing in these cups, right? Champions League. There was another couple cups, but Champions League was the big one. 
So when you play in Champions League, you also go to other countries. So like when I played in Russia, we were one of the better teams. So we were also in Champions League, and we went and played in Italy. We went and played in, um, I'm trying to remember what other, maybe in France, and then uh, what was the other one? Maybe in Poland. Dude, how bad does it suck to fly when you're your height? Um, again, Russia, there's a ton of money. And so we had our own plane. Oh. So. Rich it, people probably. It was, it was nice. Yeah. The funny thing about flying in Russia is there are, especially when you're chartered, when you have a private plane like we did, there are no rules. Absolutely no airline rules. So guys are smoking on the plane. You can, you can, guys are walking around during takeoff and landing. Um, you can do anything on the plane. doesn't matter. Uh, all the seats turn into beds. So it was, it was nice. nice. Um, you are landing in 50 below weather oftentimes. And so anytime we would come back into Nova Zabirs during the winter, I, I, was, I thought we were going to die every time. <laughs> I'm like, how do you stop a 15,000-pound plane on an ice runway? How, how does that happen? Physics. It, like, when, when is the time when we're going to slide off the runway and die? That's what I kept thinking every time, but I'm here, so it didn't happen. Yeah. Like, I mean, statistically, you should be dead, right, for how much air flight you've taken? It, I mean, I've flown, I've flown a lot over those years. And then also with this, my job now, I fly a lot. I remember 2017, I was in a different role than I am in now in my, uh, my consulting work. But um, I did 265 days on the road in 2017. Holy shit. Yeah. It was every week. I'd leave on a Monday, get back on a Friday, pretty much. Oh. And there were some times when it would go like Salt Lake to New York to L.A. to Atlanta to Seattle to Miami back to Salt Lake. And that's like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Boom, 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 boom. And you're oh. destroyed by the end of the week. In fact, uh, I don't know if Delta will be happy I talk about this, but I don't, I don't really care. People know. But so – when you're a normal frequent flyer on Delta, the highest um, sky miles thing you can get is called diamond status. There's actually a higher status on Delta. It's called Delta 360. And it's an invite in by Delta to be a part of this. So Delta will actually invite you to be a part of Delta 360. And that year I got invited to 360. Ooh, nice. And it was gnarly. It was really gnarly. I mean, you, I, I don't, I'll give you one, one example really quickly. Um, so I was flying from Salt Lake to Seattle. Um, Seattle is a 360 hub. So all the Delta hubs, so like Salt Lake, uh, Atlanta, Minneapolis, Detroit, uh, Seattle, those are Delta hubs. They, always ha they all have 360 service. So what, what, what that was was um, I was done and my flight was concluding in Seattle. Okay, so I was going to go to get my bag, whatever it is, and then drive, get my rental car. Uh, maybe I didn't even have a rental car or something, but and then take a taxi or Uber to my hotel. So my flight lands. We get to the gate. I'm, I'm in first class because you get upgraded every time as a 360 member. I walk off the plane. There's a guy, a Delta rep, with my name on an iPad. And this happens pretty regularly when you're 360. They drive you in a Porsche to your connecting gate. So, so instead of walking into the tunnel, into the terminal, they take you down the stairs and onto the tarmac 
put you in a Cayenne and then drive you to your gate and then you walk back up the stairs and then onto the plane, okay? So, but that was my concluding flight. And I'm like, why are you here? I don't have a connecting flight. And he's like, yeah, I know. I'm going to drive you to your hotel. You guys, you know where I'm staying? And they're like, oh, yeah, we've been tracking your travel the whole time. So I'm like, oh, this is awesome. So I walk down there, put my luggage, all my stuff into the Cayenne. They drive me off the tarmac out of the airport and then drives me like 15 miles to my hotel. Amazing. And then he gives me his card and he goes, whenever you're in Seattle and you need anything, make sure to call me. And I'm like, this is awesome. Dude, by the way, this is the number one reason to be rich. Forget about all the stuff that you can buy. Like, like <laughs> I, I've perks. heard, uh, it's the perks. I've heard Tony Robbins talk before, and he's like, Tony Robbins is like, you know, he owns 34 businesses, and he's a billionaire now or whatever. And he's like, if I lost everything and I had to start over again, there's nothing I would miss. All the stuff, all the watches, all the artwork. He's like, what I would miss at his height, which is probably similar to yours, he's like, I would miss the convenience of travel. Because yeah. when you're rich and you can go Delta 360 or you can charter a private plane, right. it's just a totally different experience right. than what all of us peons experience in the travel world. The problem is you got to travel 265 days a year. Yeah. You know what I mean? It doesn't leave and a lot of time for family, right? No. And, and that was a tough one. And, uh, you know, I probably went maybe six or seven international trips that year too. I was in Malaysia three times. I went to Ireland three times. Uh, I went to the Ukraine. And all of those trips are all first class. And so when, you, when you're buying multiple international first class tickets, because that's what you charge your client when you're going international, you'll, you'll get bumped. I mean, Delta tracks all of that. And they're like, hey, whatever we need to do to cater to you, you're going you're gonna to get it. And for me, it's great because I, you're right. Airplanes and I don't mix. And so if I'm in coach, I'm literally like that year, if I was ever in coach, like coach, coach, I would be so pissed off at everything. Like, and it was nobody else's fault, but I'm like, <laughs> right. why are you sitting so close to me to the person? It's not their fault, but I'm right. like, uh, like, you know what I mean? Like, You're like why, why are my knees and my cheeks? I, why can't I sit straight? <laughs> because I can't even sit straight on this plane because my knees are banging. And then the person immediately comes back and I'm just like swearing at them. And, yeah. Because then you start feeling entitled, right? You just tap that old lady on the head. You're like, hey, uh, can, do you notice here I'm 6'9"? Like, hey, fuck, you're 5'4". Can you please keep the seat uh, up, but erect? My, but my sciatic. Yeah, exactly. All right, so I would be remiss if I didn't mention that um, you went to BYU, but we're obviously drinking a beer right now. So I'm guessing no longer Mormon. No, no, yeah, that's I I left the church a while ago, and um, it's uh, it's uh, you know it was just it wasn't for me. Are we cool to talk about this, by the way? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. there's this weird thing. So as you know, up in Palmdale, where you and I went to high school, and both of us moved up there because our dad's job transfers up there, right? right. Ninth, tenth grade. Um, you know, it, it's kind of a weird thing. There's a big Mormon population yeah. in Palmdale. And, Southern uh, California in general. In general, yeah. yeah. Uh, wrestled with a bunch of Mormon guys. Yeah. And the same thing happens every time I bring up Mormons. We're like, oh, Mormons. And they're like, actually, all the Mormons I know are pretty good dudes. Yeah. So it's it's this interesting thing about the church where I, I'm not religious, so I don't think their stuff is any more crazy than any other sure. religious stuff. Um, and everybody that I've known personally who grew up Mormon is either still Mormon or has fallen away from the church. Very successful. Um, just good dudes who I would want to have a beer with or not if they're still part of the church. Um, you know, what were some what were some highlights of growing up in that faith and then maybe eventually why you decided to leave it? 
You know, the, I think with most organized religion, the biggest pull for a lot of people is just the sense of uh, community, belonging. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know how political we can get, but I'll, I'll you go You can get here. as political I, as you want. I, you know, I think it's I, I think it's a case study of, of QAnon. Same thing. I, I listen to people that believe in the QAnon craziness, and it, it's not so much that they just think that Democrats eat babies and suck the blood and because it gives them life or what. I don't know what QAnon what they totally it's pretty fucking crazy yeah it's it's nuts like i'm i'm a libertarian and i'm pretty far to the right but then i hear some of the stuff on some of these QAnon forums and i'm like you guys are you guys are legit crazy you watch way too many yeah. science fiction movies as a kid but but i hear them talk about why they're willing to give up their families and their friendships to continue to follow that because they feel connected to the community they feel like they belong to something Right. And I feel like that's organized religion. Yeah. And especially if you grow up in it, like I did, like my, my parents were both Mormon LDS and, uh, it, from, from a young age. So it's just all I knew. And my friends were LDS and it gave me a sense of belonging, a sense of community, a sense of dependency. Right. I could, I could lean on people cause I knew they had the same faith as me. Um, you know, but I think that's, and, I, and again, I think that's most organized religion. I think when you get old enough to get some different perspective, um, you, you start realizing that um, you really don't need a community to uh, live a good life. You, you need some support, right? You need a good family. You need good friends. Uh, you, you know, you, you need something that you're passionate about in your job. But um, I, I felt like I didn't need the the community aspect anymore and i didn't believe in the teachings uh i never have uh i a lot of it was just kind of like i'm going through the motions because i'm supposed to you know what i mean because like my parents expect me to or because my brother still practices or because my friend also is mormon or because i i lived in a certain area in utah still or you went to byu <laughs> or you went to byu right and so there's these expectations and so you still kind of you 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 continue the facade because it's convenient, right? Especially if you're living there. It's like it's convenient to stay Mormon because if you're not Mormon, then you're kind of rocking the boat and it becomes not convenient anymore. And um, I just decided that it was no longer for me and I kind of moved out of the, the there's, a, there's, a, there's a little bit of a bubble in, in South Salt Lake, it's Utah County that's very LDS. I don't even know what the percentage is. 90 something percent of people down there are LDS. You get closer to Salt Lake and it's more, you know, 50 50. And you can, um, there's a much more diverse population uh, now where I live, which is really nice. And uh, my wife and I are, are going to be moving to San Diego soon as well for her job. And so it's going to, you know, it's going to expand even more. But yeah, I just, uh, it wasn't for me anymore, and it was time for me to move on, and I, my philosophy in life now is, is, uh, look, there are a lot of good things about the Mormon teaching. You know, they're very family-focused, focus on um, doing good, and, uh, and I respect that. Uh, I think that someone's salvation is determined upon their intentions in life, right? It's like, I want to be a good person. Now, just because I want to enjoy myself with an alcoholic beverage every once in a while or something else that might be against core doctrine of, a, of, a, of an organized religion, to me, doesn't mean that I'm less than in the afterlife. 
And so um, as long as my intention here on earth is that I want to be a good person. I want to actively promote goodness. I want to, I don't want to hurt people intentionally. Um, and uh, that's kind of went where my mind went. And so the church didn't end up being for me anymore. Is, is there anything about the culture or the community or the transition, the tradition or the, the systems or the process? Is there anything you miss? Like, is there anything you miss from that, you know, Sunday event? Cause um, ironically, my wife, um, very glad it didn't work out with her ex-fiance who was Mormon because then I got to marry her. But she was Mormon for about five years. And so after we got married and we had kids, we were like, we want something of faith to be um, instilled in the kids. So we went to a Mormon church here locally, and uh, I was an investigator. You'll know what that is oh, uh, yeah. for people listening to yeah, the, the missionaries podcast. missionaries over here, I'm, best, I'm guessing. Yeah, a lot of missionaries. Yeah. I talked to a lot of them. Yeah. Um, and uh, an investigator is somebody who's checking out the church to see if they're, it's for them. And although... I didn't believe in the teachings. I, I, I'm kind of agnostic because I think it would be ignorant for me to say there isn't a God, but I don't believe that there necessarily is a God. You know, there was something about the routine and the Sunday and the group of people who were all super inviting and just super good dudes. There was something about that that I was very drawn to. Right. Um, and we ended up deciding it wasn't for our family, but, you know, not, to, kind of like it sounds like you have, I have nothing begrudging against the, the anybody of LDS faith. Not at Is all. there anything that you miss about the routine or the teachings or anything? Um, not really. <laughs> yeah. You had your time there? Yeah. You know, I was, uh, I, I'm good. You know what I mean? I enjoy, I actually enjoy the, the time that being free on Sunday allows, right? It's, it's very structured in the LDS religion on Sunday. Um, oftentimes when you have a, a role in the church, your whole day is structured around work. And um, look, at all, it's all in the effort of serving your community members. I think what you experienced is a little bit of exactly what I was talking about. It, it gave you a sense of belonging. Right. Which you enjoyed. Right? This, yeah, it's a great this, feeling. Th that you're a part of something and everybody's super nice to you. And it's like, hey, you know, good to see you, brother. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, hey, this is kind of nice. People are genuinely excited to see me. And that sense of belonging, that sense of community where you're, they're kind of inviting you into the fold and you're like, hey, I'm with these people. This could be cool. I think entices a lot of people. Um, I just, uh, it, I, I've got what I need. I don't need that anymore, um, and uh, and and it's and it's been great. You know, my my, my wife now is uh, is not LDS. She did not grow up LDS, and uh, getting her perspective on life is refreshing. And our ability to build something different moving forward than what I've experienced in the past has been wonderful. And uh, I'm just I'm just really enjoying life right now. So, so this is interesting. Maybe we can close it out on this. Is you know whether it's CrossFit people that can't stop talking about CrossFit or vegan people or any other social cause that you belong to, I, I do get this feeling that Americans are making the mistake of finding their community outside the church. I was just reading some article the other day where we're down from the 1970s where 80% of Americans would have considered themselves part of some type of religion, whether that's Catholicism or LDS or whatnot, to now we're below 50%. And I feel a little bit, this is the one maybe political offshoot we'll do on this podcast where most of the podcasts revolve around politics. Um, I feel like people are starting to find their community and their um, their belief structure 
and maybe even their God, for lack of a better term, in politics. And you mentioned QAnon. You know, maybe it's QAnon, maybe it's Antifa, maybe it's, you know, hard extreme Republicans, hard extreme progressives and liberals. You know, I think there is some danger in finding community in something that's actually outside of your community, you know, in politics, in this kind of nebulous, Trump is my God, Biden's my God, whatever the case may be. Where are you finding community? Because I'm sure for 20 years, your community was your volleyball team, right? Yeah. I mean, those are the people you were probably closest with. And before that, it was probably church. So yeah. where is where is Ryan finding his community that you're like, oh, these are my people. These are who I lean on. When I'm having a fight with my wife, these are my bros I can talk to. Where are you finding your community? Yeah, I've got, that's a good question. Um, I got, um, it's still a little bit in um, the volleyball community, uh, which I'm still actively involved in in Utah. There's a, there's a tight volleyball crew in utah um the volleyball community is 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 pretty tight kind of know everybody everybody kind of knows you there's kind of one place where everybody plays and uh and we've my wife and i have made some really strong connections with those with that crew and even to the point where my wife who um she's athletic but she's never she's never played volleyball before I've, i've actually got her into playing volleyball and um unfortunately <laughs> you'll laugh at this but i feel bad she should probably get to hear this but she knows where i'm going with this but so I, I got her into volleyball and i got her on the sand and we start playing and we actually started playing in a co-ed league sand volleyball league in utah and um, you're just screaming at her all the time like play I'm, better i'm not like that at all <laughs> like i'm super encouraging you know what i mean because my expectations of her it's her first time ever playing you know what i mean I'm just like, hey, let's just have fun. Right. I, By the way, I would not be able to do that. If I yeah. had previously been an elite athlete, I would be screaming at my life, my wife. I'd be like, set the ball! Not, not <laughs> if she, you know that she can't play. You know what I mean? She's very novice. So right. it, doesn't, it does no good for me to scream at her because she's literally doing all she can. I would still scream. I'm a lesser <laughs> man than you. I would still scream. It's our second league match, okay? I actually am hurt. So I, I had a quad strain. So my buddy is actually playing, subbing for me with my wife. And um, she digs a ball. It kind of gets pushed over to the left side of the court. My buddy sets her the ball, and she jumps to try to hit it over, and she kind of hits the ball and then comes down and lands on her arm. Crack. Snaps and breaks her arm. Oh, God. break. And, and, and she's writhing in pain. And I'm just like, I, I tell her later on, I'm like, baby, I, I've been playing sand volleyball for 35 years. I've never seen somebody break their arm on the sand. It's the first time I've ever seen it. And she's just like, I, I was trying to let her know that I think it's a freak accident and not a reflection of her lack of volleyball ability because that's what I didn't want her to think. Right. So, I'm, so, so she's not like, well, I'm never going to try that again. You know what I mean? It was just a freak thing that happened, and it just it just so happened that it happened the second time she played. <laughs> oh, my God. So has she given it up, or is she still going to play with you? She got her cast off about three weeks ago. Okay. And the doctor told her that she's got probably about six weeks of, like, um, it's, it's really just, like, getting her range of motion back. Right. So she's doing a lot of, like, stretching exercises. And uh, she just did a couple push-ups for the first time, which was a big deal because she broke a radius bone right there, right oh, below her wrist. Brutal. And she had three casts on. 
So she had one cast originally. Then they, then they put her in a cast that went all the way up about mid-bicep where she couldn't straighten her arm. Then they cut that one down to about three-quarter uh, forearm where she could straighten her arm, but it was still in a cast. And then they finally got her cast off. And um, they told her about six weeks to do the strengthening and then probably another six months before she's totally normal. Because, yeah, all those muscles atrophy. And they were atrophied. She's got them, most of them back now, but the biggest thing is range of motion. And sometimes, like, with setting, it's kind of a lot in the wrist, too. And so, like, that motion of kind of absorbing the ball hurts her still a little bit. It's just – and then and then just coming back from any injury, if you'll talk to any athlete, the big thing is just the mental hurdle right? of telling yourself – I can do this, um, and, I, and I'm and i not going to re-injure myself, which is another hurdle, mental hurdle. And you just kind of got to get back out there and, and, and do it. So she's kind of at that point where she's thinking, ah, maybe I can get back into it. Do the two of you have any kids together? No. Oh, okay. No, and we won't. Oh, you're not, that's not part no, of no, the plan? No. no. All right. Well, that was a, that was a definitive no. No, 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 no. no. Um, one of the reasons why we're together. <laughs> perfect, perfect. And you have kids from your previous marriage, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Um, any of your kids going to be Olympic volleyball players? No. No, 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 no chance. Okay. No. And it's too bad because I was telling you earlier, I, my, my oldest son, Max, he's uh, 14. He's a freshman in high school, and he's, he's a solid 6'5", a freshman in high school. 6'5", freshman in high six, school. 6'5", high school. So the basketball coach, the volleyball coach, everybody's drooling over this kid. He has zero competitive desire. He does not. He any any organized sport hates it. Not for him. No. What's he What's he passionate about? Because I've school. I've got a nineteen year old. He's he loves school. School. He's like I'm gonna be a seven foot physician. I'm like, dude, you do that. And uh, he's a phenomenal piano player. Uh, his piano teacher recently told us that he has a photographic memory, like she's rarely sees in her students. Amazing. He can play pieces that normally take kids weeks, and he's able to memorize in three days. So he's got, like, that type of strength, which right. is pretty phenomenal. Which is going to go way farther than being I tell ball. him all the time. I'm like, dude, you do good at school. You're going to be super happy with your life. You're going to go far doing that. And so he's into it. He's a good kid. Nice. And yeah. you, you know, I'm part of this group called Front Row Dads, which we should have you out to one of the events. Um, <laughs> cool. It's it's a cool group. Um, so I always like to ask this question: What is the thing right now as a father that you're doing best? Oh man, I think I think the best thing is um, support that I'm giving them and ensuring that they know that I got their backs. You know, when you go through a divorce, like my wife and I, and um, you got to deal with the dynamics of that. Uh, you know, you're constantly thinking about what the best strategy is to ensure that they know that you're still actively involved in their lives. You're curious about who they are as people, particularly as they grow, and uh, and that you're there for them when they need you. And uh, and that's all I'm trying to do for these guys, for these for these boys. They're they're such good boys and. Uh, hope they know that just because their mom and dad don't um, have the same relationship as they once had that that doesn't necessarily mean that it changes the way that they feel about them personally right so yeah I I'll, I'll never forget this conversation and when I was a when I was a lesser man in my 20s 
um, a mentor of mine, this guy, Patrick Rodriguez, he was a manager at Washington Mutual where I worked. He had gone through a, a pretty ugly divorce and had a couple kids. And, you know, I was a 20-year-old. What the fuck do I know? Right. And I was like, hey, don't you don't you just hope your, your ex-wife, who did some pretty horrible things to him, I'm like, don't you hope your ex-wife just ends up with this horrible man? And she's like, no, I... He goes, I hope, he, I hope she ends up with an amazing man of character because at the end of the day, whether I like it or not, that man is going to have an influence on my kids. Absolutely. And the only thing that matters is the environment my children grow up in. And I was like, wow, that's the most altruistic comment I've ever heard from a man probably in my entire life. I heard that probably at 23, 24. It, it will probably, I, I will take that, that conversation to my grave because I'm like, oh, that's what it's like to be a bigger man, to realize like, hey, even if the relationship with mom and dad doesn't work out, you still want to wish on all fronts, including your ex-wife, right. you know, has a great man in her life. Like that, that's what life's all about. And I'll, I'll never forget that conversation. Yeah. Amen to that, man. Cool, man. So true. What did, what did I forget to ask? Like, I know you've done a bunch of these interviews, whether it's the SBs or with people way cooler than me, but uh, there's always a question where you're like, man, I wish that guy would ask that question. What's the question you wish I would have asked? Oh, man. That's a tough one. Um, we we covered a lot. This is this has been fun, just rapping. You know what I mean? Um, you know, I've had an interesting life. It's I've I've been blessed to be able to experience the things that I've been able to experience. Um, you know, and I I still look forward to the next chapters of what I'm going to be doing. And uh, but um, you know, being a part of something like the Olympics and being a part of something like achieving. Uh, a success like a gold medal which not a lot of people can say they have it 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 just is a great learning experience as you'll you know you see heard me talk about throughout this this interview it's um things that i still use today and that i think i'll always use and um and uh so yeah i i I don't know i mean look i've got a lot of different stories about a lot of different things because i've had these wonderful experiences but um you know, if there was anything that people were listening to this that was helpful, I, I, that's that's really what I'm about now. You know, is the, the work that I do is really about bringing value to people's lives, whether that be leading their teams more effectively, uh, managing the an organizational culture more effectively, which impacts positively someone's life. Um, people people want to work for organizations that have good cultures. It's it's a it's a major influence on their ability to. Um, to choose a company and re- and stay at a company. Nobody wants to work at a place where you wake up and you just dread going to work. And so um, I get an opportunity to work with organizations to help them create that, which to me is rewarding and it's purposeful and, and I'm bought into what we're trying to do. And so uh, it's it's been a long journey, but it's been a lot of fun and I'm continuing to hope that I, it keeps going. So Cool, man. And it, it if people want to follow up with you, I, I appreciate you being here. If people want to follow up and learn more about volleyball, I know you have a volleyball podcast. Yeah, I do have a volleyball podcast. If, if awesome. they want to learn more about hiring you as a business consultant, like yeah. where, where do people find you? So um, our website, our, the company that I work for is called Partners in Leadership. So if you go to partnersinleadership.com, you can find information. Um, my email is super easy. It's just ryan.millar, M-I-L-L-A-R, uh, at partnersinleadership.com if they want to email me there. Uh, my volleyball podcast is called the CrossNet Volleyball Podcast. If you look, search CrossNet Volleyball Podcast on any of your apps that you get your podcasts at, and you'll find it there. It's it's volleyball specific, but uh, man, we talked to some great guests, other Olympians, other gold medalists, 
best players on the beach, best players on the indoor team, coaches, international players. Um, it's been it's been a lot of fun, kind of staying connected to the game that way. But uh, yeah, go there, check that out too. Cool, man. Yeah. Well, Ryan Millar, I appreciate you being on the podcast, Thanks, dude. It means a lot to me. Yeah, no worries, bud. Thanks. All right.